Hey everyone, Shaden here. So, this is it, the final episode of Darling in the Franks. And I just want to say up front, to those of you just joining us, or those who were there six months ago in January when we started Season 2 of Stream of Thought, thank you so much for spending your time with us, it really means a lot. If you've enjoyed this series, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or SoundCloud as they help our discoverability. But other than that, kick back, relax, and enjoy as we present to you the finale of Darling in the Franks. Well, something shouldn't be rushed. Like a pint, which I've just poured now. A pint of lager. It's a celebratory drink because, ladies and gentlemen and others, welcome to the very final stream of thought covering Darling in the Franks. We're here. I have a nice mug of ale and we're going to see this piece of shit out. Yatta! <laughs> but yeah, something shouldn't be rushed. I mean, the ale I have here is called Proper Job, unlike the show itself. Now, because this is the final boss of this stream of thought series we've been doing, you know, when you go into, you know, the last dungeon, you need a full party with you to be able to take it on. You can't do it with just a pair. I mean, this isn't, you know, one of those third person, you know, action brawlers. So we've assembled a crack team here today. So the four man party, including myself, I'm very pleased to welcome back to stream of thought. Firstly, Living Bucket and Absolute Arbiter of Objective Truth, according to some brain trusts on the Anime News Network comment section, James Beckett! Hello, it's me. Glad, glad to have you back, James. And also joining us once again is the delightful, you know, she knows all about flowers, she knows all about ESPN, she knows all about shows. Pleasure to have her previously, pleasure to have her back. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Emily Rand. Hello. And last, but absolutely not least, stalwart companion throughout all of this stream before, very good friend of mine. He's charming, he's witty, and he is subtle, and he is a doctor. The Soul Doctor! Far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much, because they live in a grey twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. Nope. Uh, yes. And that's where uh, Stream of Thought <laughs> episode 24, folks. Thank you much for listening. <laughs> no, Doc's spot on there. Um, but yeah, we're all back to see this show out at long last. I have this bottle of, uh, sorry, this mug of beer here. And I'm just going to say something right up front before we go any further. To all of you listeners out there who have stuck with us from the very beginning of this 24 episode series to this point, 
You have my absolute respect and admiration. Thank you so much. To you all, I drink. Uh. Yeah, I'm getting drunk on this stream. I thought, fuck it, I don't care. Okay, moving on. <laughs> so, I mean, it's the, it's, the, it's the only way to get yeah. through it, really. It is. You're absolutely right. So, also, just one other bit of housekeeping I want to throw out. I have said this before, but I feel it's worth repeating now. This is the last time I'll get to say it. Throughout all of Darling in the Franks' run, uh, I, generally speaking, have not liked it. Doc has not liked it either. James, I know you've not been a fan of it. Emily, you found it perplexing. Would I? Uh, if I'm misquoting <laughs> you all, but please please correct me on this. But I don't think any of us really likes it. There are, be fair there are parts that I like. I, honestly, up until episode um, 15, mm-hmm. I, I I think I would, I would say that I enjoyed the show. Um, okay. It was obviously very problematic and i i think i was always grading on a curve you know mm. i never expected it to be much more than entertaining light spectacle mm-hmm. and for the first 15 or so episodes the show delivered that and there was some dumb stupid stuff in there but it was the kind of dumb stupid stuff that you could kind of accept at the very least and still enjoy the robot battles and the cheesy romance and all that stuff it wasn't really until after episode 15 that I think the show really kind of started to fall apart and in such a way that it, it, it kind of made the first 15 episodes worse. Mm. Yeah. There are still things I like in the, in that first half. There's still aspects of the production aspects of the world building that if you kind of look at it in a vacuum, I think, you know, it's, it's, it, it does its job well enough, but when you look at the whole show and this really is the kind of show where you have to, to look at the, the complete story um, so much of that first half ended up being such a waste of time yeah. that I think retroactively I I enjoyed a lot less, you know, um, because a lot of the, the individual beats that I thought were really cool or, or could maybe pay off later on down the road ended up amounting to almost nothing. And then all the bad stuff that I was, you know, that I and, and a lot of other people were complaining about from the beginning, that all curdled to the top like so much sour, <laughs> rotten milk. And <laughs> now that's that's all we have left. So yeah, I so for me, I think um, I described it to a friend because he was just like going on a giant Twitter rant about this, and. Um, I described it as like there are pieces of about four or five shows in this show that are very mm-hmm. interesting to me and none of them ever pan out because they're like very quickly dropped or, you know, the show gets bored and moves on to something else um, and it just never comes together at all. And to James's point, a lot of the stuff that I did like in the very beginning is kind of negated by how it escalated and then how it ended. But it's Mm -hmm. particularly frustrating because I can see like, even in this final episode, there are pieces of a show that I would like absolutely love to watch. Like we're covering post, you know, post plaxis or abandonment. Like that'd be something that'd be a show I'd be interested in seeing. Um, But yeah, it, None of it ever matters, so it's like just hmm. incredibly frustrating. Yeah, and Doc, on your end, um, I've been talking with you about it for six months now. Hmm. Like, holy shit! I think I should at least be able to read the pulse of your feelings on it. But just for the record, of the entire epi- uh, of this episode or the entire show? Uh, the show, the, your, your sentiments was. I mean, 
incredibly frustrating because, you know, I, I can't add too much to what's been said. I just will echo it and say that there's a ton of lost potential here. And I mean, it just completely squandered it. Now, I'm sure that the sort of weird trouble production had something to do with it, but um, just the writing was such, it really failed uh, what looked to be at times uh, an interesting science fiction show. And boy, Mm -hmm. like by the end, just these last few weeks, the frustration has mounted. And while nothing like super objectionable happened in the finale like it left me feeling pretty angry at the show overall for as emily well put like just adding up to nothing absolutely nothing. Uh-huh. well it's interesting i was i was reading on twitter and and i i wasn't at um ax this year and so i'm not really privy to the specific details but i was reading that i guess at the trigger panel uh one of the producers talked about how um you know, there is this misconception that, that Trigger kind of abandoned the show, whereas they were really working on under-the-hood stuff for the entire mm. series. They just didn't really put a lot of um, work into the animation production after about halfway through. But um, someone on Twitter was talking about how one of the producers mentioned that um, one of the big challenges of that show is that Trigger and A1 have almost completely opposite ideas of how to approach scripting and, and conceptualizing a show mm-hmm. and how that actually mm-hmm. that actually led to a lot of of issues because and, and we'll probably get into this a lot later i really do feel like um in one of the failings of, of the the direction of this series uh is that instead of taking the best ideas from both companies and synthesizing them into something that that kind of made sense as a complete work they really just kind of took the ideas that both studios liked and smashed them together without any real rhyme or reason. And, and at no point did enough care get put into it to try and figure out, okay, well, how do we actually make this make sense as a single work? It was just really more of an opportunity for different directors and different writers to throw stuff at the wall. Um, which is why I think it was so easy for individual episodes to work really well mm. because you could see those directors mm-hmm. engaging in ideas and imagery and themes that they thought were cool. But again, there wasn't that single voice to kind of look at the big picture and say, okay, well, what are we all leading to? It just kind of ambled onward and onward and onward until it petered out. Yeah. So they basically took a golden goose and turned it into chicken nuggets. That sounds about right. And they took away animators so, from Idol Master Side M, which is a good show, by the way. And mm-hmm. uh, hmm. yeah, that I'm still like a bit salty about that. Is that the one where it's all it's all yes. boys? I, yes. I, I seem to remember that. that. I think I covered that for previous. Yeah, guy, it's but like I, I can't it's remember. a remarkably charming show. Shows. Hmm. I remember like I remember liking it. I remember thinking, oh, well, you know, the characters are actually pretty fun. Yeah, no, it's it's really fun. It's very charming. I mean, this is not an Idolmaster side M thing. I'm just saying that they did uh they did take oh, no. yeah. they took a lot of animators from that to prep yes. for Franks. Yeah. And that's something that now having seen it w- I would have been less mad <laughs> if uh, and I mean this happens in anime all the time, so I really shouldn't be mad or anything, but it's just kind of like an extra little stab when the show mm. turned out to be yeah. like this. And then, you know, they moved it from a show that I really liked. Well, no, that's, I mean, that's exactly how I feel about the new, uh, 
the new um, Bioware game, um, Anthem, because uh, Andromeda, one of the mm. one of the things that went so wrong with Mass Effect Andromeda is that uh, Bioware essentially decided to put all of their resources into Anthem, and they stole all the good talent from Mass Effect Andromeda. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Mass Effect Andromeda is kind of a hot mess. And it's my favorite franchise, and so I'm always going to be bitter at Anthem for potentially, <laughs> you know, undercutting what could have been a really awesome Mass Effect game to make whatever the hell Anthem is going to be. I hear you. So the reason I asked all of our, you know, fellows here on this podcast just to offer their opinions here, just give a sample of how we feel at the end of the show, is that's how we feel. But if you feel differently, if you enjoyed the show, if you, you know, thought it was great, or if you just simply liked, you know, you, it occupied your time and it was, you know, worth the, you know, 24 minutes each week you invest into it, that is great. I'm glad for you. It's not for me, James, Emily, Doc, or anyone else to say to you, no, actually, this show sucks and you're a fool for thinking that. I will again, however, plead to people not being, you know, arseholes in their own right in, you know, responding to people's opinions, wink, wink, about... Um, a show when they are disparaging towards it but well that's boat sailed already so just throwing out there though if you like this that is great we're not going to tell you not to like it yeah we we don't consider ourselves like sort of objective tastemakers i mean for god's sakes i know i I watch a lot of you know questionable stuff i spent two hours my suggestion i spent two hours last night watching japanese professional wrestling i don't think i'm like in any position to be like you know what i like is the best thing (laughs) so yeah enjoy enjoy what you want to enjoy but allow uh other people to disagree and discuss and you know that's what makes uh fandom fun is people with different opinions talking about stuff at least that's part of what makes it fun for me exactly so doc for the last time for darling in the franks would you tell us about the people behind this episode well i shall uh i don't have to read any cvs this time because they're all returning champions so uh there are three credited uh directors for this episode (laughs) my god like were they all just like short straw, hot potato. Let's go. <laughs> I can guarantee you, whoever uh, whoever everyone liked the least had to handle all the zero two hero stuff. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were like, you, you take you take that stuff. <laughs> they drew straws. <laughs> and they're a, a pair of credited uh, episode writers. So on direction, we have uh, series director Asushi Nishigori. He's uh, being hands on with the finale. Uh, and uh, Manabu Okamoto. Let me see. I know he's directed an episode before. I'm just gonna quickly control F this. We can Why does this feel like it's leading out. up to like some sort of like supervillain like like this? Almost feels yeah. like the formation of the Sinister Six. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. So Okamoto directed uh, episode 21 for You, My Love, and episode 13, The Beast and the Prince. Uh, and we also have. Oh okay. Yeah. We also have uh, returning champion uh miyuki kuroki who uh directed episode 20 a new world the uh the aliens one i believe where it was first revealed that oh yeah. <laughs> i'm already forgetting what happened in the show i was like episode 20 what happened in that one <laughs> uh and nishigori is credited as uh script writer 
along with uh, the other head writer, your favorite and mine, Naotaka Hayashi. So the like the core Frank's creatives for the most part uh, saw their show home. Well, that's good. Like like hearing that you know Lex Luthor and the Joker have teamed up for one last time. Fucking great, fantastic. All right, let us begin. Let us get this over with. Darling in the Franks, episode 24, Never Let Me Go, a sentiment that the, you know, creative team wished the fans felt towards the show. <laughs> so, this episode starts off and it's in space, and it's been a couple of days since Hero Hero 2, a pairing name I cannot believe I didn't come up with before. <laughs> I haven't thought of that either. That's good, I like that. So Hero 2... Like they kept, they went through the gate, which I believed, and I could be wrong on this, was supposed to take them directly to the Verm homeworld, but it seems they've got lost. You know, did program the route into Google Maps, could have ended up anywhere in the known universe, so kind of an upsie there. They're wandering a bit, chatting, you know, about what, you know, we're sharing our wings, I know how you're feeling, etc., etc., etc. Usual rubbish. <laughs> At the beginning, it there is a. a, a the text code zero 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 appears. That's one of the creatives. I think that's Nishigori's handle for himself. If I had to <laughs> guess, <laughs> that's mean. <laughs> I've I've seen it a couple of times before, so it's definitely one of the creative staff. Okay, all right. Because uh, this episode doesn't have the usual opening. It's not like the hybrid being of Hero and Zero Two had taken the moniker Code Triple Zero or something. And they just don't ever, like, go into what it is. Or at least I don't remember them doing it last episode. So, yeah. But if it's a staff credit, that's fine. Yeah. So, back on Earth, it's now been, like... As this episode progresses, it cuts, like, across several steps in time. So we start, like, just a couple of days after the passage. Then 70 or so days. So, Kokoro's pregnancy is now starting to show. Uh, Nana 2.0 says, I'm going to get you some pregnancy clothes. And... I, maybe I'm wrong on this, but did she have a heel turn where she was like, you know... Yeah! She's way more agreeable now. Uh, yeah, she just decided to be nice. <laughs> yeah. Whereas before, she was very much like, I can do nothing without direct orders from Papa. I think that was her... I think that was legitimately the last scene that she had, was her saying that. What, well, she was in the background uh, watching... Mitsuru and Kokoro make out in the rain just sitting there silently. <laughs> it was kind of creepy. <laughs> it would have been more interesting if they just kept her, you know, like, lost without instruction, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So, the kids end up going back to Missile Sign. This is actually the kids' own Missile Sign. It's not like the other squad's Missile Hines. Like, are they all called Missile Sign? I don't know. Whatever. Who cares? But we can tell it's theirs because we find Zorame's enter the fray sign as he literally enters the fray of breaking into, you know, the place. So I'm like, ha ha, I get it. That's that's neat and all. Cool. It, I hate I hate all of this. I hate, like, I feel like just the show, This that's the beginning of, well, maybe the whole episode almost, is like this nostalgia tour through the entire thing. And it's like poking at my heart. And my heart can't help but, like, like oh, yeah, I remember Zorba. And then I'm like, no, you don't deserve this emotional reaction from me, show. I would just yeah. refuse. Like, fuck you. 
for trying to get this. You don't. You haven't earned my feelings. Uh, you've earned my feelings. It's hurt my feelings, but they're all of the negative variety. The ones that usually cause me to start, you know, uttering profanities really fast. I, I'm in agreement with you, though, Doc, and here's the thing, right? My initial appraisal of this episode was actually reasonably positive, because I thought, you know what? In a vacuum, this is a reasonably good send-off for everyone whose names don't start with either Hero or Zero 2. It, it would have been, you know, great if the show had built up to this properly, because it would have been a good send-off for everyone. Uh, my opinion on that has changed. I don't agree with that anymore. There is a particular character whose send-off is fucking atrocious, who we'll get to a bit later on. Oh, that's gonna be a right laugh. <laughs> Poor Fatoshi. No, wrong person. Is that, is that not who we were? No. Okay. No, it, it was no, it was Hatchie's left eye. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> or or Naomi's arm? Is she missing she an is. arm? She is. Why? I guess they Futoshi want to like you know not completely erase the impact of that one explosion that happened in episode one. Oh yeah, I forgot it's about like, so that. So see, we remember. She was totally injured, guys. <sighs> Just fuck. Okay, so would it be reasonable for me to say that most of this episode is just an extended montage? Yeah, for the no, most absolutely. part, for sure. Yeah, like yeah. two thirds at least of of it is just the the clock ticking by, watching the kids have babies, grow mustaches, <laughs> grow food. Uh, and it's it's um, Ichigo narrating, right? It mixes and matches throughout the episode, I think, depending, like... I think for the most part it is Ichigo, yeah. There's some silent montages or, or ones that just have music, but... Yeah, I want to say, isn't the only er- narrator Ichigo? I feel like that's the case, but I could be misremembering. No, isn't at the end when they, like... It's really dumb and we'll get there, but like they're all thanking <laughs> Hero and Zero Two for teaching them what life really means and they each like say a part of what life means to them. Oh right. And all That's, these things yes. they learned. Oh. Yes. I think I blo- I think I repressed <laughs> that scene. I think yeah. I blocked that out. On my the show at its yeah. like yeah. most didactic openly. <laughs> when they yeah. when they send when they send Mecha to uh, uh, a spirit bomb <laughs> of uh, of sap. <laughs> That, I have to say, like, we're not, we've not got to that scene yet, but when I actually watched that happen, uh, like, a strange substance started leaking out of my monitor. I realized it was a mix of uh, treacle, cheese as well, a mixture of treacle cheese. and cheese it was. Yeah, like, I, I am legitimately surprised at that point that Stan Bush's The Touch did not start playing. Uh, it's too good for this show. It is. You, you're absolutely fucking right. So, okay, let's move on to the next bit. So... Kokoro, you know, is being harassed by all the others because she's pregnant and everyone's, like, paying attention to her. Whatever. I don't care. If there's one thing that I noticed in this episode right away once the actual characters back on Earth started talking about Hero and Zero Two, it's that they were talking about Hero and Zero Two. You might recall in the previous episode that I said that I thought this show was trolling me. And in the last episode we covered, I complained that all of the relationships seemed focused right around, you know, oh, where's Hero? What's happened to him, etc., etc. No mention of Zero Two, and now they won't stop talking about her. Like, make up your fucking mind. Although I will say, none of them seem to have made an effort to move that that like lifeless statue <laughs> yeah, of Zero Two's body. It's just like, <laughs> like you'd think that they'd bring it inside or 
you know... Put a re- ro- like, ropes around it? Like, because there are going to be kids playing around eventually. So what if one of them knocks it over by accident? Oh dear. Shit. I was, like, half thinking that they were going to start some kind of religion around I am this. legitimately surprised they didn't, but I'm glad that I'm glad that they didn't as well, because I think I would have probably thrown up. Yeah, that, that would have been too much. That would have been too much. There was a, a part, like, another part early on where I just got mad because I had felt the show reaching inside my soul trying to manipulate me when you know uh kokoro is showing other people how to sew and then you have that scene when mitsu and the other two boys are bringing her stuff and he's about to go and he just lets out this like very cute like shy hesitant like it it itekimasu and she's, you know, grins and it's like, Itarashai. And it's like, no, stop, stop it. <laughs> Please, like, don't. Ah. I mean, BTV went to the, like, zero two school of lobotomy after getting into a relationship. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, I don't want to, again, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but the way they treat her, uh, her actual pregnancy is just so funny because you can tell it was written. By a bunch of men. <laughs> <I'm>, yes. <laughs> yes. Because, because they're like, oh, um, she'll probably just be like real tired afterwards, I'm sure. Um, but then everyone will be there and, uh, we, you know, we don't have to, to show the, like, the pain of labor or, like, the really complicated emotions that, like, a young mother with amnesia probably has about this baby she doesn't remember making. No, it's, it's, no, it's just, <laughs> Jake, it's all fine. I just have to say, it's like, the, the point you made then about not showing the pain of labor or the complicated emotions, I want... Everyone listening, and you three as well, to put a pin in that for later when I finally get to, you know, my theory of everything for Darling in the Franks. Just pin, okay. pin in that for later. Uh, but, All right. But yes, indeed, we fast forward to day 240-something. It's 12 o'clock. It's, you know, sunny with a slight chance of rain. Um, and indeed... Kokoro's now giving birth, and it has the baby, and the baby comes out looking alright, as opposed to the freakish lizard child I expected. <laughs> so, never mind. Never mind. But yes, meets through a dad. Now, I have, I, have, I have two things that I really want to make sure uh, that I don't forget to mention about this scene. Uh, Go on. Outside of the, the stuff I just talked about. Number one, um, did, did everyone just watch the baby come out? Like, were all of her friends just there, just like <laughs> intently staring? I don't know, but that's like, gross. Like, and again, correct me if I'm... <laughs> Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mitsuru was the last person to be there, and everyone else was like, hey man, we've been here this whole time. This baby just came out of your maybe wife. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and all I can, and again, all I can imagine is just Sorome freaking out and going, <gasps> like the whole time this baby's coming out. All the boys were forced to be outside of the room, but all the girls were already okay. in there. <laughs> still weird. Like, still where weird. were you, Mitsu? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Um, and then point number two, um, the 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 moment I really knew, because I, I think I'm a bit, I got a, l- a little more cynical a little quicker about how much this, the past few episodes have really just invalidated so much of, of what came before. So I honestly, it, I'd actually started to care a lot less about the characters because I, I realized that they, they weren't really there to serve any kind of purpose. And so the nostalgia stuff didn't really get to me that much like i appreciated it on a purely structural level like you know okay they're coming back and they're tying up the character arcs and that's good but i wasn't really feeling a whole lot and i think the moment this episode really lost me 
was when it pulled out that shot of little baby, uh, the little baby I... holding on to Mitsuru's finger with one hand. <laughs> I hated it. I burst out laughing. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's such a cheap, cliche, manipulative, like, yeah. Like you can just tell that the that when they're animating that everyone was like oh we just this is such a moving and powerful moment everyone's gonna feel so much and I was I literally when I first saw the episode I went God no like yeah, yeah I just burst <laughs> yeah, out just... laughing because I have no shame and just don't care. <laughs> well, no no jury will convict you for laughing at because. <laughs> It's fair. Well, and again, I, I know you guys. You know, you guys talked about, and I thought that was it was really interesting because it's not something I, I thought of. Um, you know, this kind of running idea of experiences that transcend um, oneself. Mm -hmm. You know how the experience of childbirth can be so powerful that even if your memories get erased and you don't even know the person you made the baby with anymore, <laughs> that connection. <laughs> Is enough. Still some kind of glue. I know. And Metaphysical glue. Just, yeah, and like, and we'll probably talk about this later. I can appreciate that that's kind of a statement that they were trying to make. I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Fountain, and that's like that whole film. Mm. So I totally get that idea of trying to communicate that there are certain kinds of love that you believe are so powerful that there is literally no force on earth that could get in between them. I get that. Mm -hmm. But this whole time I just was so distracted because I'm sorry for Mitsuru and Kokoro. I mean, I know that, that Kokoro has only ever been defined by her desire to have a child. And yeah, the memory erasure was really vague. So we don't really know how much she remembers and how much she doesn't. But and again, I'm speaking as a man, so, you know, obviously this is not something I'll ever, you know, have to experience. Hey now, Junior, Junior was a documentary, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> All I'm saying is that if I was, <laughs> if I was Kokoro, or if I was a girl, and I woke up one day, um, with no memories of my life, uh, prior to like the last week or so, um, and all of a sudden I was pregnant and I had no idea what pregnancy was and I had no idea who put the baby in me. And like, I, I feel like, I feel like there's a lot more to deal with than just, oh, look, the baby's holding on to his daddy's hand. Isn't that cute? Like, What's no, it? you can't. <laughs> it all happened off screen. Yeah. Wasn't that the plot of, like, Marvel 200 where Miss Marvel... Yeah. yeah! Oh, dear. She got impregnated by her own son from the future. Yeah, oh. if you think, like, if you think, like, anime's fucked up, just read Marvel comics sometime. Yeah, that happened. I know. That happened. It's, it's really bad. This is another scene that's just, like, God, it's not fair. Because when you've had... When you've had children, just those fucking scenes triggered my own like memories of the birth of my own children and so i couldn't help but feel happy and i'm like stop this show like you have not earned a one second of this meanwhile like <laughs> i'm cracking up and the only experience i have with childbirth is watching a woman give birth in sex education class in like high school <laughs> and mm -hmm. which is was incredibly disgusting and oh yeah it's a, made it's me never want to have yeah. children yeah. ever but no, like... It's rough, man. Yeah, like, I was just cracking up. Like, I did not feel anything 
about this, except for the fact I, that I, I, totally I was like, understandable. I, was I like, wish that was me. If I have kids, I hope I look as gorgeous as Kokoro fucking does when she's like sitting there, like, and even her sweat looks beautiful. And you can tell yeah. the animators yes. spent like so much time on this, and I'm like damn like i hope i look that good <laughs> like are you kidding me? you know there's someone in that there's someone in that studio whose job he's like the sweat guy, <laughs> okay. sweat guy. whenever whenever we need someone to draw some like really sexy looking sweat so before we had the flower guy now we have sweat guy yeah well no one really talks to sweat guy because he's a little weird and um he makes really inappropriate comments uh whenever people come back from the gym, but he's really good at drawing sweat. That's no way to speak about Nishigori now. Come on. <laughs> well, and the, well, I, and, uh, and I'm, I'm so sorry. It's just, this keeps nagging at me. All of this stupidness could have been so easily avoided because erasing Mitsuru and Kokoro's memories did Jack nothing shit. for the yeah. story at all. Nope. It didn't have to happen. They could have just let them have their baby, let them have their stupid love story, and at the very least, we wouldn't be sitting here asking all these questions about, like, well, what happens when you wake up and you're just pregnant all of a sudden? Like, they wouldn't need that. Yeah, I mean, at all. that actually but... is, the more I think about that, I've just realized how incredibly icky that is, given certain scenarios in which that can happen in real life. So exactly. let me move on from this scene before I start getting really mad and smashing shit. Um, by the way, put another pin in that because that will be relevant later to the big theory. Um, so more time passes. The you know the guys are all you know building stuff. The girls are all like you know sewing because you know even in a world post-apocalypse where they don't supposedly have gender normative roles, they're still doing gender normative shit. I don't get it. Whatever. Who cares? Moving on. Uh, Ikuno, Ikuno is like you know going to the books because that's the thing she's done throughout the entire show, apart from confess she's a lesbian. So again, moving on. And um, then we get a scene which. I liked, but I also found incredibly funny because my headcanon is awful. So Goro decides to go wandering the world to find more people. Now, I don't disagree with him doing this, because I think that's a good idea, but I have a couple of issues with this, ranging from the silly to the more serious. The, the first thing I'll ask is, are you telling me there's a complete failure of like worldwide communications now that Papa's gone? Really? They can't just literally use a computer to call the other plantations across the entire planet? and just check they're okay. He doesn't even seem to know where they are. Surely they could find that out. So, don't know about that. Um, secondly, this is more of a structural thing. I would have actually really liked for Goro, you know, to have a scene where he actually found, like, a plantation. Just a brief one, where he, like, meets people he's never seen before and says, hey, I'm from all the way across the world, just to show that his endeavour actually had some positive results. Do we see any fruit born from him doing this? Nope. Doesn't matter. Like, it's an insert that doesn't do anything. Like, him going across the world is utterly irrelevant to the long scheme. And lastly, because my headcanon's terrible, the moment that Goro did this, I immediately thought, holy shit, he's become the fucking road warrior. He is Mad Max. <laughs> like, seriously, I just literally imagined, like, in Fury Road, when you've got, like, Mad Max on the front of that car, I just imagined Goro in his place. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. For me, it was like... <laughs> This stood out to me just because Goro previously, like, was not at all the character that he is in this montage. So it was, like, the Goro that said, like, I'm just going to tell you my feelings and you can do whatever with that. I just needed to get it off my chest and you don't have to reciprocate them and stuff like that. Never would have, like, 
like done the okay honey i'm leaving now kisses ichigo in front of everyone like without her consent i think unless they've been doing stuff off screen that like we don't know about and they're already in a relationship question mark well, something sure happened and then like just strides off and all you can see is his back and like all this stuff and i'm like okay this was not his character for like the majority of the show it was so frustrating too because that moment and i i, I like that moment in isolation yeah. because i think it shows that when the, the writers are not tripping over their own ambitions they can actually pull off decent light you know, kind of character comedy yeah. match and stuff. Like, like it, 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 like, and again, you're right. It's kind of weird that after all of this, all of the non buildup of their relationship, they're just all of a sudden making out, and it's what you know. That's definitely messy. But at the same time, watching that scene, I thought to myself, you know what? If if this is what the last half of the show felt like consistently. I could see myself liking it a lot more. Yeah. It didn't take itself so damn seriously. I would have loved a funny show where it's just like them trying to survive. And like we'd actually seen their exactly. relationship yeah. progress because suddenly I'm just like, oh, like they're obviously together, but like we didn't see anything about that. And also like this transition from Goro going from being like a huge team player to like leaving to find other plantations and himself, I guess. Uh, it kind of makes sense, but it's like so sudden because all of the development happens off screen. Well, when you uh, when yeah. you unearth the Swedish like duster in the whole show, suddenly a spirit of independence and rebelliousness bubbles yeah, up I within know. you, and you're like, I must wear this yeah. duster, and I must explore. Actually, I take it back. Goro is not the road warrior. He is the lone wanderer from Vault 101. Yes. Yes. I... <laughs> Well, one thing about this scene that I, I that made me really mad in retrospect, because it's just kind of a sign of, of how poorly this particular character was handled, is how when Goro kisses Ichigo, there's the, the funny reaction shots from um, from Miku and Zorame, uh, which is fine. You know, that's kind of what they're there for anyway. But, um, but also, <laughs> Ikuno's there. And, you know, she gives this look that's like, oh, yeah, cool. Just make out in front of me. That's great. And it's played off as a joke, but... It's just so shitty. Especially in context of what <laughs> that, happens later. Exactly. It's just so shitty that the show is totally willing to go, haha, isn't it funny? Ikuno also likes Ichigo, but that's never going to go anywhere. No. But it's never willing to, to actually um, give that character... We'll, we'll get to it later, but that moment just really frustrated me. It, it was just a sign of, like, okay... Uh, I see where your priorities are, show. And, um, yeah, it's just frustrating. At least uh -huh. Ichigo ended up with some... Uh, not Ichigo. Um, Ikono ended up with someone, at least in my head canon. I, uh, maybe? So maybe? The looks I... they were giving each other <laughs> said something to me. Nice to see it happen on her deathbed, though, and not when she was actually, you know, alive and able to live the relationship. Yeah, great. Brilliant. The defining moment of, I of Ikono's character finally meeting someone whom she can share a relationship with, is someone we've A, barely know shit all about, and B, is doing it while she strips, you know, hutch, hooks up to an IV and is relying on bedpans. Great. They got to do research together. Also, does anyone find it weird that Naomi remembered everything? I don't even know what to make of Naomi at this point, honestly. Yeah, that character is just such a, a non-entity that it, it could have just been a background character. Um... 
because we don't know anything about what Naomi likes, what her skills are. We don't know why she would be a good research assistant for Ikuno. We don't know. We literally don't know anything about her other than she and Hiro tried to pilot together and couldn't, and then she got exploded. So I guess like speaking less to the Naomi character and more to like how the show of like it just seems inconsistent with kind of the world building and the way they've been doing things that they would unfreeze all the kids and they would all remember everything why freeze them in the first place why not just kill them that's what i was wondering like they were keeping them around for experiments i guess i don't like really know I think we'll probably get to we'll probably get to this when we get to the the more the series yeah. kind of retrospective. But um, one of my biggest issues with this show is how horribly it handles the actual structure of its oh, of its man. society, especially when it comes to ape and how how the parasites work, how the 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 colonies work it doesn't it literally makes no sense and this is just another example of of how if you actually think about it for more than just a second almost none of the decisions made regarding these kids makes any sense whatsoever pretty much it's just narrative convenience yeah so back to space back to you know wherever the hell hero two is or heroes who are i suppose hi they finally get to the Verm home planet. It's like now been just over two and a half years approximately since. Can we... I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. This is... I can't help it. I have to do this tangent. Why do a race of beings that are immaterial, that are just non-matter, like floating consciousnesses, ease, whatever the plural of consciousness is, uh... Need a home planet. Pass. Why do they need a physical thing, a material structure to live upon? Why? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Why are they affected by a bomb? <laughs> They're not matter. I know. I mean, maybe. I, I mean, they, they explained that this is like a, I don't know, some sort of black hole type bomb or, I don't know, whatever. They don't go into it. I shouldn't care so much. It bothered me, though. Well, spoilers, by the way, for Weapons Lair, folks. If you think Verm are killed off entirely by this, nope. They do say that, you know, in classic Team Rocket style, that they'll be back. <laughs> yes. So, not like the threat scene been dealt with. Although, that being said, uh, to get ahead a little bit, I did find their comment that they would be back at the apex of evolution to be funny, because, correct me if I'm wrong here, people who know more about biology than I do, but isn't evolution a constant process with no tangible end? So does that not mean, like, they'll be waiting indefinitely? Yes. Or whatever yeah. they decide yeah. is the apex of evolution. <laughs> yes, like, yes. So that, that's, like, incredibly arbitrary and subjective. Guys, guys, this whole show is just a prequel to Kato. I need I'm to see that show. <laughs> There's not enough alcohol in my alcohol now that you've said that. God <laughs> damn it, James. Oh, okay. <laughs> Moving away from the wrong answer. Let's move away from that. So, yeah, they finally turn up at the Vermhole world, and Verm give them a greeting. And, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm glad there wasn't actually any cubes there, because that would have been wrong on so many levels. But speak, <laughs> speaking of what's there, it's everyone's giant space vibrator, Ringhorny. That's made a reappearance. <laughs> Welcome back, like, Ringhorny. Welcome back. How many Ringhornies did they have? Because they, like. Just the one. 
but it seemed like they were all the same shape. It seemed like they had oh, like a okay. whole. Yeah, oh. it seemed like. I was gonna say, I think they like cloned it and had several. Yeah. Or something. So, Verb do something. I think they insult like you know heroes ego or something. I don't know what they do. They probably say his hair looks stupid. They gently caress his consciousness. Yeah, and that disconnects him from uh, Zero Two. Zero Two then gets, starts getting impaled, you know, by sharp objects. Great. Fantastic. I love the visual metaphors on display here. This is just brilliant. <sighs> Thing, things called horny are impaling her. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Fantastic. So, okay. Back on Earth, because it's now been, like, you know, two and a half years, approximately. Um... Wait, wait, actually, before uh, before we move on from the space stuff, um, at any point, did it ever explain why, or did, has, I mean, and I, I, know, I know the answer is no, but I'm just wondering what your guys' takes are on why the, of all the, the ways for them to pay off the term parasite, like, of, of all the ways for them to, like, to go in in that direction, why did they make the the Klaxosaur set up like the anglerfish scenario, where the man just like attaches himself to a giant woman and then is slowly like dissolved into her being? Because that's what happens to to Hero for most of the episode. Uh, you know, giant Mecha Zero Two is just floating through space shooting stuff, and Hero is just slowly and slowly getting weaker and weaker, and it's implied that that's what ha- like that's what happens to all the men in the Klaxosaur setup that the men just kind of get absorbed into the woman again like a little anglerfish. Um, do you think the show knows how weird of a message no. that's, that, no. that is? Or, no, no, okay. no, no. Of no. course it doesn't. I mean, I'm not even sure if they like link it to parasite because I'm not really sure. Like, we can get into this when we talk about the entire show because I know. In the previous podcast, uh, you guys asked about, you know, why mistletoe, why parasites, and that kind of thing. And it throws a lot of stuff mm-hmm. out that is connected. They are connected to each other, like Kringhorny to mistletoe via, like, mythology. But in the show itself, it doesn't, none of these things mean anything. Except mm-hmm. for, like, a few of the... Again, I'm sure we'll go over this later, because I can go on, like, a giant rant about how the flower language worked out. But, like, except for how it treated, like, flower framing in the first half of the show, I'd say. Kind of, uh, mm-hmm. like, predicted what would happen to some of the characters. But other than that, like, it's not... It doesn't... Maybe, maybe I'm just too dumb to get it, but, like, it doesn't... None of this means anything. There's no payoff in terms of, like parasite other than like mistletoe is a parasite and their their like factories are named mistletane and then that was used to kill to kill balder like loki used it to kill balder in mythology and frank horny was his ship Mm -hmm. no it's nothing it's nothing explicit it's just and maybe it's because i read the oatmeal's comic on anglerfish (laughs) so that was just an idea that was stuck in my head but that's immediately that just what pops into your yeah, and I mean, for I guess for any viewers that don't know, with anglerfish, what happens is the when you think of anglerfish, you think of like the big, giant, scary, sharp-toothed, glowy fish. Um, those are the females of the species. The males are like these tiny, little, pathetic, weird-looking <laughs> dorkfish. And uh, the way that procreation with anglerfish works 
uh, is that the male fish literally like bites into the flesh of the female fish and that like he begins to dissolve until he's nothing but just like a pair of gonads mm-hmm. that pump sperm into the, the female fish. Um, and again, that I just, I couldn't help but think of, of like, I, I had no idea. I guess I was confused as to like why this setup between zero two and hero like led to him getting so weak and, and dying. Like, I don't know. It's just a weird, it's a weird way to, to end that relationship on a purely technical level. Like, you know, when they're making out and expressing their love for the first 20 episodes of the show, I don't think anyone would ever say, yep. And then he's going to end up inside a giant robot version of her, uh, with the life force slowly being drained out of him until he fades into nothingness. Uh, if you're trying to avoid Verm and like becoming one consciousness, then the fact that that happens to hero is a bit, it, it's like a lot of mixed messages there, right? Because like you assume that oh, we'll, oh yeah, boy. like you assume that afterwards he becomes a consciousness, as does she. Uh, we'll get to that later. Maybe I'm like skipping too far ahead, but uh, and the fact, but the fact that they reject Verm, I mean, I guess you could say it comes down to agency, but still, like it's like he's accepting the same thing kind of by choice. So, uh-huh. yep. Maybe, You're not wrong there. Maybe that's the crux of it. Is um, mm. it's meaningful because he chose it, and he'll become one with just the person that he cares about, as opposed to like his it being chosen for him and him forcefully being subsumed. Now, here's a thought. This, I, I, I guess, I really hope this isn't what the creators of Darling and the Franks think sex is like. <clears throat> Because, um, yeah, that's yeah, it's a series of tubes, quite literally. Yeah, you you go inside the lady, and then your brain melts, and uh, you turn into giant naked souls that spin about in space. Right? That's yeah, what sex the fate is. of all men. Right? Of course, it is. By the way, I do appreciate how in this episode, you know, after all the processations that you know we are unbreakably bonded, you know, we are for- together forever. That all it took was literally for Verm to just mentally flick Hero in the nose to break the connection. That's all it took. <laughs> Truly a romance for the ages. Great. Oh, small small side, by the way, just to rewind a little bit. You know when I said before in the previous episode about why Hero and Zero Two didn't get married, but they passed the book to, you know, Mitsuru and Kokoro? So it turns out this is what they describe as their honeymoon. That's what Zero Two calls it. Couldn't they have just fucking settled for sandals? Really? Guys? Fuck's sake. So, okay. We get to the next point, which is, as I say, here, like, not hero, sorry. Mitsuru's, you know, Mitsuru's kid is playing in the fields near Zero Two stone statue, which, as James has rightly pointed out, you know, no one's moved it, no one's put a sign around it, or, you know, a rope, or anything to stop people from, you know, accidentally knocking it over. I mean, if you're parallel parking and you don't pay attention to your rearview mirror, you will literally bump into that statue and smash it to a thousand pieces. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, alright. Then, you know, Mitsu and Kokoro find the kid, and the kid starts saying the word darling. And they're like, wait a minute. Where did she hear that? H- how did she hear that? And somehow Mitsuru, like, you know, makes a leap of logic that's yes. <laughs> that absolutely defies, you know, what happened with, you know, Hero 
guessing how Zero Two was getting injured in the couple of episodes back, and figures out that Zero Two statue is acting as like you know some sort of Discord come Skype you know receiver to Zero Two all the way across the galaxy, and they're like, no, they need help. Let's all join hands together. And oh my fucking Christ! Here's another like, so I you reminded me there are a lot of people that end up joining hands together around this statue and we've mentioned that they've already unfrozen people but there are scenes that happen before they unfreeze everyone where there seem to be an inordinate number of people farming and running about like doing stuff in the room uh, in the in the base or whatever and i just found that hilarious you you know doc you've literally just given me the idea why didn't they hold a festival can you imagine like you know, Frank's version of Woodstock, like, you know, to support Hero and Zero Two through the power of song <laughs> and, and everyone, like, you know, being camping out. Well, if this episode teaches us anything, that it would really just evolve into an orgy. Yeah. Huma- humanity needs so, it. <laughs> There's only yeah. one baby at this point. Well, okay, so, I mean, the problem with this scene, too, and it's like you guys have said, not only is it just irredeemably corny, um, it's, it's played so straight and so earnestly that for me it was impossible to take seriously Mm. but from a structural standpoint the main issue with this really with what a lot of this verm stuff is amounting to is that really with absolutely no sense of of gradual escalation or no sense of coherent world building the show just decided to introduce magic you know um, and I mean, maybe this, this is just me being, you know, a godless heathen or whatever, but when it comes to matters of like the soul and, you know, your spirit and, you know, um, abstract, you know, abstract concepts like love and all that stuff, whenever you, you take those things and turn them into like literal properties that can affect reality, I, I tend to consider that like magic, like fantasy, right? Um, when you're literally using the power of love to give energy to, you know, the giant love robot that's a million light years away uh, with your prayers. Like, that, to me, that's that's fantasy. And that's fine if that's what your universe has already allowed for. Mm-hmm. But up until episode 24, <laughs> um, even with the aliens, even with the... Um, even with the, the, the space stuff kind of taking over the show, it was still technically within the realm of science let fiction. Let me, uh, hang on. Let me, let me stop you here and cast your mind back to episode six in which the techno cancer that Hero had oh, contracted, Jesus. the blue thing on his heart was removed with the power, simply the power of the bond between he and Zero Two. Well, and you know, I would even accept that because it, you could have some techno babble that says, "Oh, well, you know, it's like how you know, it's like the the, the mind over matter." You two have no standards yeah. when it comes to stuff like this. God damn it, techno cancer. <laughs> I, I mean, well, I, it's it's just that you know, there are all those stories about people who you know the placebo right, right, effect. Ah, right. uh, yeah, where, fair, fair. You know, if 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 you were you know, there is, I think you can argue, um, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the human body is able to do some pretty miraculous yeah. stuff purely through force of willpower. So I can even accept that. But when the the baby who is two years old and who has never met or heard of, or has no understanding of hero zero two, the word darling, um, she somehow telepathically taps in 
to 02's dead stone body, which then allows everyone else to just send their magic love feelings into the sky. Like, that to me is, that's a different show. That's a completely different really? I mean, universe. But, but they've already they've already allowed for like soul transfer into a machine. Do you think? Oh, do you think this is worse than that? Like the communication over space and I time mean, or whatever. <laughs> yes, because uh, I I do because it's one of those things. It's kind of like how with Evangelion, mm-hmm. um, they treat the soul scientifically, right? And so at the very least. You know, within the realm of like that universe, it's a scientific concept, right? That there's this intangible quality that can be bound to a machine and all that stuff. And I would, I definitely agree that that that, especially given the definition I just gave, that that still kind of counts as magic. But it's it's still within the acceptable kind of parameters of what that universe would consider to be scientific realistic you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um like there are scientists that are like yeah we found a way to extract the soul and put it onto a machine and they you know they try to explain it and it at no point in evangelion does like well even in evangelion it's one of those things where like all the angels are just space aliens anyway so it's you know anything advanced you know sufficiently scientific will come across as magic but with with Darling in the Franks, and I think it kind of speaks to those tonal problems we've been talking about, um, it's just such a hard left turn into treacly, saccharine, you know, our souls will be bonded throughout all time and space. Like, it just, I don't know, it, it goes from being um, Evangelion to What Dreams May Come. And I love both of those things. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you smash the two together without any you know, rhyme or reason, it, it, it's just really jarring. And I think that was my big Yeah, I mean, I think, was, like, whether yeah. you think it is within the bounds of what has been heretofore explained as, as possible in this universe, like, whether you think it's on the right or wrong side of the line, it's pushing it very, very hard, even if you think they've established mm-hmm. stuff like this before. This is definitely the most envelope pushy that they've gotten with, like, yes, the the abstract metaphysical shenanigans mm-hmm. um emily what about you what do you think on this particular scene uh i mean so i'll say at this point i'd like checked out so obviously like any emotional kind of like tug that it's doing like yeah, again like that. i'm the one that burst out at the whole like giving birth <laughs> thing and like you know i uh but i i will say that within the because like so from my perspective, because the show has already, in my opinion, gone back on a lot of things that it established previously or like walked back, like I even saw the the verm as kind of some sort of thing where it's like, okay, we can't like logically explain this conflict. So we're just going to throw aliens in. And um, I was not at that. Uh, I was at AX, but I was not at the um, at the trigger panel. But I think this is another case of like where Trigger's uh, typical method of going like full bombast, um, slightly comedic, but also just like take it, take everything and dial it up to 11 and just have like, like that's when you have these things like the power of love overcomes all or like 
the the buster machine was inside my heart the entire time like that kind of thing really bumps heads with a lot of the more down-to-earth stuff that the rest of the show is trying to do and again to kind of james point james's point and something i brought up when we just started talking about the show as a whole i'd want to see both of those shows but not together so this was another case of that kind of butting heads with other things in the show but I'd seen so much of that previously that this specific moment wasn't like any more jarring to me than the introduction of of Verm, right? Or something like that. So that was kind of my take on it. Yeah, no, I think I think you put that perfectly. It's it's a it's a matter of the show that we get in episode twenty four isn't the show that we got in episodes one through even twenty three, much yeah. less one. And this was, one. I feel like. The, that mess of what you just said was totally brought home by a, just a very fast scene, quick scene that happened right before the one we're talking about where they give Naomi back the mirror. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. remember when this mirror was an important thing? Like, God, the show, every like the dynamics, uh, everything was so different back then. And I felt like, you know, the show had potential to go in all these places. Like I wasn't completely out on it. And now it's mm-hmm. just like reminding me of all the sort of annoying choices that w- were made for it. When you when you brought the mirror, then yeah. I just thought to myself, "Wow, remember the time Hero gave it away and just referred to Naomi offhandedly, I like know, she was just somebody just... in the street? Like, <laughs> Someone gave this to me, but I want you to have it now." And then they're all like, "We should be grateful for this mirror. We wouldn't be standing here right That's now like... if it wasn't for this mirror." Oh, fuck. I mean, he essentially just re-gifted his oh, yeah. ex's stuff. Yeah. <laughs> which is the, t- the tackiest thing so you can douchey, possibly man. do in a relationship. Entirely in character for him, though. So, okay, my thoughts on this scene. Two things. Again, because I have a horrible head cannon. When this was happening, I thought of the ending of that Simpsons episode where they find Mr. Burns in the woods and think he's an alien. Everyone just gavs around and starts singing Hello, Starshine, the Earth Says Hello. Ah. Oh, the, 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 X, the X-Files yeah. crossover. <laughs> That's literally my thought. And then I thought of something else. I thought, okay, I've complained many times about people, you know, worshipping the ground here or walks on and seeing he can do no wrong. So it became ah. crystal to me. The hive mind, the villainous hive mind, is defeated by a hive mind. Oh. Right. Like, that's what happens when you, you know, have that kind of thing going where the lead character can't do any wrong and everyone supports him and thinks he's great. And then suddenly, you know, they try to clash that against the idea of fighting an intangible, you know, unified groupthink as opposed to the very tangible groupthink we've got going on here. Nice one, Franks. <laughs> Fucking great. Am I wrong? Am I wrong in saying... No, no, not at all. I mean, uh, th- uh, th- this hive mind has babies, so they're better. Um, I think it's the argument that this show would make. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just... There's just such a lack of self-awareness that I'm sure we'll talk yeah. about later. The show has absolutely no... It has no self-awareness. Um, is this... Is it this cut to Hero and Zero Two or the next one? I think it might be the last one where Hero's kind of reflecting on, on his life. And he actually says, I was kind of a selfish asshole to mm-hmm. all of my oh, friends, yeah. and I treated them like crap. And and Zero Two says, yeah, but you did it for love, so it's fine. And it's like, no. <laughs> the show is so close to recognizing what's so fundamentally wrong with it, with, with its protagonist. And then literally a second later, it says, oh, but if it's for love, 
then it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. Um, and it's just, and again, I think with the, the way that it treats the verm, um, just like you were saying, is they have this notion of this, um, this all-encompassing evil hive mind that expresses all these, uh, these nefarious beliefs about uh, conformity and about letting go of your human emotions. Put a pin in that. But it's not smart. It's not smart enough. Oh yeah, it's it's just it's not smart enough to do anything with it because it only gave itself four episodes to to address the problem. Yep. So. <laughs> yep. So, okay. After you know everyone joins hands, sings "Come by Ah, my Lord." You know, starts commencing the pagan pagan rituals. You know, all the all the usual good shit. Um, they do indeed reconnect and make it to the Verm homeworld, but there are attacks again. And this is when, I mean, I thought we hit peak um, Die Buster previously, but now we hit peak Trigger. We, like, had to get this in before the show was over. Because Zero Two, <laughs> mech, like, Giant Zero Two disintegrates, we get Golden Strelizia with arms crossed. And I'm just like, not even close. Not even close to replicating the feeling I've had watching Gunbuster and Diebuster when that similar pose happened. Not by a country mile. I could not give less of a flying fuck. I know what you're going for there, Trigger. I know you've got, like, you know, your, your skits here and your moves. Like, it's like, you know, it's like your secret technique, you know. But it doesn't matter. It's in the service of Jack Diddley shit. So, sorry. Better luck next time. But it had to be golden, so it could be like the mistletoe that killed Balder, and they take Kringhorny back. I'm not even kidding. That's what happens in the show. And uh, also, I'm not sure if it actually is a reference, but it'd be funny if it was. Well, and I mean, I can't fault the show too much for its meaningless mythological references, because again, Evangelion, it did the same thing to a degree, where it just kind of tossed in references to a foreign mythology because it's cool because it looked yeah. and sounded cool but but darling has just been so half-hearted with it like it doesn't it just tosses in names and not even to the point it's like you were saying the names don't really line up necessarily to how they they pay off in the mythology and even in this this instance when it does you kind of wonder like was that intentional? Did they mean to reference mythology there, or is that just yeah? A it happy works accident? out, but like even as someone who uh, I like appreciated at least in the first half of the show how much detail was paid attention to like flower names and stuff, and all of that stuff continued to be very on point. Even in this scenario, I cannot say definitively like yes, the show absolutely meant to have this be a reference. That's alternative theory, so they can make get one more model out of it. Golden Strelizia. <laughs> there you go. Selling for $100. I mean, it looks pretty cool. Not gonna lie. It does look good. So here is... I'm gonna try now to construct... Like, to, to relate the mythological symbols that have been pointed out to the events of the show. So <clears throat> I'm gonna say Ringhorny, uh, as Emily pointed out, was uh, the ship of Odin's... Maybe, I think his, I mean, Thor might have been his favorite son, but certainly Baldur was his most beautiful son. And the ship was like famed to always get where it was meant to be going. And even when the Verm stole Ring Horny, eventually in the end, it was taken back and used for good. And it got by hook or by crook to the destination in which it was meant to go. And Mistleton, so the incident that you mentioned with the mistletoe killing 
uh, the aforementioned Balder, and he's buried in Ringhorny, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ship is lit on fire and pushed out to sea or something. Like, the that piece of mistletoe is what sort of ultimately, like, if you had to mark the starting line of Ragnarok, the Twilight of the Gods, the end of the world, it would be that incident, I think. And then so them creating Mistleton for Squad 13 to live in maybe is the thing that ultimately is the germ for what ends the world that Frank's sort of that, that struggle, that society uh, with the verm kind of shadow ruling everything. So that's, that's my attempt to shoehorn that stuff and make it fit. That's not, I mean, it works. Yeah. That that works. Yeah. I think, I think Norse mythology is a really strange, like, it's it's one of those things with the like an Evangelion at the very least the Christian mythology, whether by accidentally or whether accidentally or intentionally the the Christian mythology kind of fits because of the whole you know the themes of rebirth and starting over and kind of coming to terms with the wrong that you've done you know that's all very much kind of within the 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 Christian tradition and so it, it kind of it at least is thematically on point, even if the references themselves are kind of nonsense. But with Darling in the Franks, I, you know, I have to ask, other than being cool, which I agree, Norse mythology is pretty cool, um, it doesn't really seem to yeah. have much to do with anything that Darling in the Franks is doing. I mean, the whole idea of, you know, they don't want to be soldiers. They, d- they don't find any glory in battle after a point. And I, again, the, the subversion of the ancient Norse idea of, you know, in order to, to truly be uh, validated in the afterlife, you have to die in glory, mm-hmm. you have to die in battle. And I mean, I, I guess you could make a point to it being like a subversion, like that's what these kids were, mm-hmm. were meant to do, but they ended up rejecting that mentality. Yeah. But, but do you think that even occurred to know. the writers? <laughs> I don't know. Sure. I don't know. Like I have no clue. Yeah. No Some, something I'll say is that I'm not against mythology being appropriated for use in a story as long as it serves a purpose. And I don't disagree with your reading, Edoc. I think that's actually pretty great. I think that that's perfect. That's such a neat bow. It's excellent. But what it's in service of, I don't know. If you want a contemporary comparison of Norse mythology being used to actually tell a story that was not part of the mythology but was appropriated to do so, God of War, PS4. You used, you know, to talk about fatherhood, parenthood, etc., etc., while actually featuring a lot of the same characters and concepts that you've discussed, you know, regarding Balder and such like that. So, it's not a question if, you know, I mean, Frank's is not the written paper for a history exam. It needs to actually, you know, do something with it narratively. It, re- it reminded me of that scene, I can't... I can't remember the name of the anime, because I've only ever seen the scene out of context, but it's that really famous scene where, um that like super chuny like edgelord kid who always tosses out mythological references to sound badass gets yelled at by that by the girl that likes him because she's so frustrated that he just keeps referencing norse mythology and greek mythology for no reason other than it sounds cool and and she just keeps screaming like i can't understand what you're saying you're like you're not saying anything and i want to understand you but all you do is toss out all these dumb mythology references and it's all meaningless and if you're actually going to get to know me as a person, you need to drop the pretense and, and talk to me. And, and I feel that way about 
the way that the show uses mythology. It's like, yeah, it's cool. And, you know, if it is indeed intentional, the way that they kind of tied all that together with, with Mistletine, the Mistletine and, uh, and Balder and all that, I think that'd be awesome. But it's so shallow that, you know. Oh, no, I was just going to throw out, that was from when Supernatural Battles became commonplace, I believe, which was also Another, a trigger show. The trigger yes. show. Yeah. 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 Ah. Thank you. Uh, hey. but th- this whole, like, this stuff, I think, is the kind of quote-unquote storytelling that, like, it looks good in a wiki, and, which, and it mm-hmm. is the kind of thing that, like, appeals to a certain kind of nerd, a certain kind of media viewer, but to me, you know, it kind of leaves me cold when, as you say, Shadon, that the, the actual narrative and characters that all this is in service of are just kind of a disaster <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, pretty much. So, indeed, Verm are destroyed, quote-unquote, but they'll be back, you know, I'll get you next time, Gadget. You've heard all this before on Saturday morning cartoons because that's really the level that Verm reached as far as their villainy went. So, yeah. And they release all the souls they've captured into space. Uh, this also includes Hero and Zero Twos. Uh, they, you know, Strelizzi is destroyed. The whole, everything blows up. That's pretty much the end of it. Their souls, you know, eventually will apparently meet back on Earth. Uh, eventually. You know, when they get around to it. Um, Verm also makes specific mention of going of the souls going back to physical bodies. This again, pinning this for later. This will be important. Very strange that. I mean, I have. I are have thought people going to be rising from their grave like reincarnated bodies? That would be I'm amazing, actually, if that was the sequel to Frank's. Like that, they just started having like you know zombies appear. Well, I was just gonna say, I'm pretty sure. I mean, all the adults are still. In those VR chains, they got no, they got they got loaded. They got loaded into the. I thought that. Well, I thought that was just their consciousnesses. Like I was under the impression that the whole, the, whatever, the whole reason they even introduced those pods is because, I was under the impression that essentially Verm uploaded their brains to whatever. And that's what got sent off into space. Because there was that line about how you don't need your physical bodies anymore. All you need is your consciousness. Uh, I have a different theory on actually so... on the pods thing. But again, another pin in that. There's a lot of pins flying around. If I... Yeah, yeah, we'll this, get to this, that. This we'll is the, that. you know, like, um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia conspiracy theory shot. This is just me, like, you know, looking over all the things like, I've got it. I've got it. Or at least I think I have. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the end of everything. The, our heroes, you know, see the explosion. They They know it's all over. Zero uh, two still body disintegrates, so that's it. And then we cut to three thousand seven hundred days after the fact. This is like now ten years later, and this is the montage in which you know they start rebuilding. And there's a couple of things in this I found a bit suspect, like the fact that you know they say, "Okay, we're not going to use magma energy more," and that was really difficult. And I'm like, "Really? I mean, you never used it, <laughs> like." The adults used it, but the kids never used it. They never had. Apparently, they used magma energy to power, like you know, mm-hmm. the cities and stuff. But I can't. They just literally use anything else. Like this doesn't immediately make you know all existing farms of energy. I mean, they put wind farms, so it's not a question of like you know magma energy being specifically irreceivably needed to run all of the electrical systems. It's just that they needed something to generate power that wasn't that. And if they could sure as shit, you know, read up on, I don't know. Um, crop farming and all that and all and genetics 
they sure as hell could, you know, throw something together reasonably well, I would have thought, as opposed to making out to be like, you know, suddenly magma energy, we stopped using it, it all went downhill. Furthermore, given there's now a lot less people, why not just gradually phase it out? Like, analogize it to real world, where we're gradually phasing out fossil fuels, you know, diesel, petrol, gas, etc., in favor of renewables and electric cars. Speaking of which, the analogizing thing, again, another pin on that. Um, the only difference is that it's alive? Yeah, but about that, actually, comes to think of it. They say, like, you know, that the Klaxosaur fleet returns and then just turns into the Earth. So if they're worried about the Klaxosaurs caring about that, that's not the case anymore. Like, the Klaxosaurs have literally given them the planet to do with as they will. Sure. So phase it out. You still... But... Okay. So this is... Like, when they first reveal what the the magma energy is, they say... It is what the Klaxosaurs evolved into, which is like, which is still one of the the stupidest lines. Super dumb. The live talk, talk about like uh, <laughs> like super scientific things, like just beings evolving into sort of non material or or not non material, but like um, just pure energy. They evolved into yeah. heat. Uh, they evolved into heat. <laughs> like, how do you? When we use energy to do so, like we are like killing all these beings that have become this energy source. So in theory, yeah, you'd want to stop using it. But like every time the kids talk about it, and I say every time, it's only been twice, <laughs> they have like talked around it and been like, we heard it was really important to them. It's like, well, yeah, it's important to them because it is them. <laughs> like, yeah. it, I, I don't know if the show can't decide or if there's like an information disparity between narrators or, or what's happening there, but... I, I um, really get the impression that the show would say that if dinosaurs were alive today and you were filling up at the petrol station, that Nessie the T-Rex whoever would be very angry about it. Like, because you're, you know, using up, you know, the petrol that was made from deceased dinosaurs that turned into oil over millions of years. Well, and again, maybe this is a translation yeah. thing, but magma is just really hot mm -hmm. rocks. Yep. And and when we when we when we get energy from magma... And maybe the creators of Darling the Franks don't understand this. When we get energy from magma, we're not like pumping it in to a magma engine. We're just using the heat to to generate electricity. So it's not even the magma we're using. It's the byproduct of the magma burning all that energy, the heat. And so really it's just a matter of they need a different name because it sounds like it's a lot more similar to what you just said. It sounds like the analogy they're making is, oh, it's like fossil fuels, except if the fossil fuels were still alive. But that's not what magma is. And yeah, yeah I was I, yeah. I was kind it of just, wondering why they didn't just make up a word, like I know. only because only because I get I get Plasma. the like fossil fuel <laughs> analogy, and that's in my opinion definitely what they're going for because like magma, yeah, it doesn't work that way like if you try to get close to it within a certain distance your skin will just burn off completely like it's not like mm -hmm. you're pouring it into something like there's nothing we have that would be able to convert that and so i think like you you can make the argument that they it's not supposed to be like real magma which is fine then just change the name to avoid change confusion yeah, because, yeah, I mean, presumably we, human beings, you know, before the fall of society understood 
magma, like when Dr. Franks, for example, was at university and skyscrapers were still, you know, and Tokyo was a thing and civilization was as we knew it. We all knew what magma was, but like it wasn't until the Verm came along that they discovered this magical energy source. So it's got to be something different. Well, and they're pumping it directly into people, which again, like would yes. not be possible <laughs> yeah. with like the actual thing that exists in real life. Shoot me up with that lava. You would die. Yeah. I love my basalt flow. It's great. <laughs> Makes me feel like a new man. But um, speaking of actually of this, I can't believe this. Um, during uh, This is such an amazing, you know, segue on this. It turns out Nana and Hatchy are immortal. <laughs> so, okay. Let's, let's really nitpick this because... <laughs> For one, it's com- yeah. for one, it's completely narratively unnecessary for them to be immortal because we're not going to see them after this episode. We don't see them even later on when we fast forward to what must have been like hundreds of years in the future. So it's pointless even revealing this, you know, this little detail. Two, if you're not going to use magma energy anymore, how are they going to be immortal? How does that work? Three. Does this not, like, you know, seem a bit contrary to what we saw of the immortal lady in, you know, episode 10 who was withered and old? This is something that's bugged me ever since. Like, I didn't realize this until I thought about it, but she looks like she's 90, but she's supposedly immortal. And yet the timeline of Frank's The Show has been about 30 years since Magma Energy was first discovered and given to people. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah. so how the fuck does that make also, any sense? Also, and I know <laughs> we're going to talk about this later, but like, if... If Ikuno can figure out the ins and outs through, oh like, God. reading through their vast library about, like, immortality and all this other stuff to, like, help out people, even with her, like, quote-unquote, I guess, giving her energy for to let Zero Two or whoever pass. I don't even remember at this point. But, like, she she has that one last, like, rah, and, like, gives her energy uh, willingly. Um would she not be able to figure out a way to make herself immortal as well? Especially if Nana and Hachi are. Or is that, am I just like expecting too much? Well, well even building off of that, um, because what you, what, what you just pointed out is, is such a perfect, um, it, it so perfectly highlights one of the biggest holes in this narrative. Uh, Nana and Hachi mm-hmm. were parasites. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. So, and Outside of the whole emotional thing, uh, outside of our particular group getting to keep their emotions, uh, which is what I, I guess we decided was the difference between them and all the other parasites, um, the show went out of its way for the first 20 or so episodes. And Zerome, that was like the whole point of his character, was Zerome wanted to grow up. He wanted to be an adult. He wanted to not be, you know, he wanted to graduate from parasite to adult. And of course the big twist was that all of the parasites have mm-hmm. this aging thing. And if they don't, if they don't die really young because of that, they die in battle. So really the parasites are just tools being used by ape to fight the Klaxosaurs. Um Why then, or how did Nana and Hachi, why are they the exception to this? If, if Nana, if Nana and Hachi could become immortal and completely avoid the aging the 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 quick aging death that ikuno seems doomed to suffer then like why any of this i don't know i mean well and and even if you make it about the robots so you could say like well they're not in the robots anymore it doesn't explain 
anything really in terms of like why that would suddenly give them immortality outside of like the way the show treats immortality is kind of like if you got those magma shots you can become immortal but well they've got to have a few more of those lying around give it suikudo i don't think it's reasonable for someone who literally helps save the world and humanities is to like you know have a one-off jab of magma energy or however many it would need to keep it going like give her a normal lifespan maybe it's gone off switch i don't know i i don't know but i just what even was the point of having this scene between nana and hachi is it meant to imply there's going to be a thing between them oh please <laughs> well, yeah, he, yeah. Has that, he has that really horribly written line where he's like i can't feel emotions i am a vulcan but maybe if you if you stayed by my side for the rest of eternity Maybe Do all of the emotional labor for me. Um, oh, Hatchie, you've already changed. <laughs> yeah. The the other thing that... Oh, no, I was just going to say, the other thing that, that kind of made me sad about this is, again, speaking of this show and how it does have the capability to do, like, certain character moments really well, this kind of negates the whole, like, Nana kind of, like, shedding her past and getting up out of the wheelchair to, like, help that kid, which, I like, I know you guys spoke to was a good, like, character moment in a vacuum. And I agree, like, it is. It's it's a neat, like, moment about her and about, like, moving on and stuff like that. This kind mm-hmm. of makes it, like, oh, okay, she was immortal anyway, I guess. So, like, it was all psychosomatic or we don't really know. It, it goes, like, it does this thing that the show does constantly where something that happens in the future suddenly negates the impact of even just a small yes. character moment in a vacuum. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Great. Yeah. Why Very. do they all still wear these uniforms given to them Pass. by their enemy? They were there, right? I, mean... I don't know. Maybe they didn't have anything else. Who could say? They can sew! <laughs> they can. They can. So, speaking of uh, weaving a, you know, a tapestry of narrative and all that bollocks... It's, as I say, it's now like 10 plus years in the future. 12 even, I think. And of course, everyone's now grown up an adult. And there were some bits here I actually kind of liked. I like Zorame and Miku as adults, you know, sparring off, like, having, you know, their, like, little jousting session yes, with their hair. The Ahoge like, versus Ahoge. <laughs> that was pretty I like that. It felt like a moment of good levity here. Uh, then, however, we hit the brick wall that is Akudo. Not her herself, I should say, so it's not her fault. Uh, but rather it's how the writers treat it. So, from my perspective, here's how I initially appraised this. I thought, this is good. She's, you know, undoing the admittedly very ill-explained, you know, Werner Syndrome... Um, wait. Oh my god. Werner Syndrome is, a, is an early aging disease. And the guy who created them was Werner Franks! No! <laughs> is that really Fuck! the name? <laughs> Yeah, it is. Wait, what? Oh, is that like that Robert that Robin Williams movie? It was, it was um, the disease. Jack? It was the disease that afflicts its uh, snake in Metal Gear Solid Four. Oh wow! Like they said, it looked like early a classic Werner syndrome. Oh and his name was god! Ver- <laughs> I'm dying. Oh, again. that's hilarious in a really awful way. But like again, I can't. Oh my fucking god! I'm not emotionally attached. To okay, okay. Right. Let me. Let me. Let me. I have to zip past this before I feel like I'm going to throw it because I can't believe I just follow that. So, okay. Uh, so, yeah, Econo has developed a solution 
whatever this is, maybe it's a lotion, maybe it's, you know, a cherry-flavoured pill you take every day, who the fuck knows, uh, to cancel out the anti- the, sorry, anti-aging, early aging process that the parasites had. So, I initially thought this is a really cool thing. She's done something, you know, with the time that she's had left. She's not actually, you know, been a completely token character. But then I thought about it some more, and I just immediately pivoted on this, because you know how you said, Doc, previously about how we had this long discussion about what it means to leave something behind for the future, and the two points that we kind of settled on uh, were, at least as far as Franks is concerned, having kids and sacrifice. Those are that two, right? Yeah, two, well, those are two possible ways you could do it, yes. So, Cullen being, you know, cynical here and maybe possibly leaning a bit too much into, you know, hating how Ikuno's been treated as the token lesbian character, but she herself can't have kids, but her solution is to leave behind the means for which the rest of humanity can continue to have kids. Like, it's not something she herself benefits from, or something that validates her character or her sexuality at the end of this long road for her. Does that not seem a bit shit, to be honest? It is. I mean... It oh, it's is. awful. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's awful. It's truly awful. <laughs> um, because, again, it's one of those things where... And maybe this is... You know, I don't want to generalize about like Japanese society, but obviously they, they've had a, a harder time with kind of giving the credence to LGBT citizens... Um, that's that's been a harder movement, you know, for the LGBT people of of Japan to to get that recognition, to get that validation, and there's pockets of success. But I think it's it's one of those things where it would have been so easy to give Ikuno and her partner, maybe it's Naomi or whatever, she can have a family too, like she can raise a child. Um, these the these are a bunch of like teenage kids who are popping out babies with almost no medical experience whatsoever yeah uh, so and again this might sound kind of callous but I'm, I'm sure that not everyone is going to survive the childbirth process or maybe not everyone wants to have all of those kids so i'm I, i'm positive that there must be a system in place for you know people to adopt kids or to take in kids and it would have been so easy to give ikuno you know if the show really is going to go all in on that raise a child raise a child that's how you you know that is how you um that's how you build that legacy. You know, even if I- Ikuno can't have children in the incredibly traditional heteronormative sense that Darling and the Franks is talking about, um, I'm sure artificial insemination is a thing. Adoption is I a have, thing. Um, there are so many James, ways. just sorry to interrupt there, that, but uh, there's also the solution in universe that how did the parasites come about originally? They were literally cloned or test tube made. Now, I'm not advocating necessarily, you know, that we would ever do that in real life, but as far as the pragmatic solution is for populating the Earth again, it is right there in front of them. Oh, yeah. Like, use Franks' yeah. nose. I'll tell you how to do it. There's the instruction manual. Unless it was uh, magma energy dependent. <laughs> Quite possibly. Uh, you know, it, it's funny, like, before, and I'll turn the floor back over to you, James, so you can finish up, but when you mentioned artificial insemination, when uh, Ichigo was in that room with Ikuno and she was pregnant. Uh, that is what I thought they were working on before the show heavily, heavily, heavily implied that Goro is the father. I thought, oh, Ikuno has figured out a way for uh, ladies to have kids and that she's figured out artificial insemination. Mm-hmm. But then no. <laughs> no. 
Yeah, Emily, I think you were saying something, too. Oh, no, I was just going to say that, um, like, I'm just really frustrated with how Ikuno was treated, especially since the show borrowed certain elements from, say, like, something like Yurikuma Arashi, which I won't fully spoil or anything, but it has a very similar storybook framing uh, device. And Mm -hmm. the decision that the lead character makes in the end is kind of a realization that she can't force other people to become like her. She needs to give like some of herself, right? Like she has to be honest about who she is. But like the show never gives Ikuno a chance to do that. And like it's another case of her working the best she can within the system that's set up. So, like, I just, I did take the show as saying that she ended up with Naomi because I just want her to have someone, to be honest. But, like, the way they had a few looks, they did her so dirty. And it just makes me really sad because, again, like, there are certain, there are certain flashes that I didn't even mind. Like, I know a lot of people were really annoyed at her confession to Ichigo. And in the moment, I wasn't. But then as the show progressed, I got angrier and angrier about it just because, again, of what happened post-confession within the show and how quickly it dropped it and how, like, it didn't seem to Mm -hmm. matter whatsoever. And, again, to your point, I forget who it was that brought it up, but, like, Yukuno's sitting there watching Goro, like, kiss Ichigo, and it's supposed to be kind of comedic. But it's like, no, no, it's not because... Like, she can't even do the same things within the parameters of the show, or so the show has said. So, it's really yeah. unfair. Well, and I've seen some some counter-arguments that have been made that I think are interesting, where I've, I've seen some, and I can't remember the name of the, of the article. I, I'll see if I can maybe find it, and we could probably post a link to it or something. But there's a, a blog post that I read recently that essentially argued that um, the show... Darling in the Franks isn't homophobic in the way that it treats Ikuno because the society that restricts her ability to express her sexuality is the same society that restricts, you know, uh, Kokoro's ability to have a baby. And that it's But she had a baby in the end, so Yes, 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 yes. So, 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 yes. And so it, it it, it made some points that I didn't think of in regards to, you know, the intentionality of the homophobia and and I think I agree in so far that I I, I think the, the the ultimate sin of darling in the Franks um, you know and it's just like what what Emily was saying when it comes to properties like Yurikuma Arashi or uh, revolutionary girl Utena which I just finished watching recently those shows have empathy mm-hmm. for queer people yeah and those shows recognize that being queer in Japan specifically is incredibly difficult because it's a society that values above a lot of other things that it values fitting in mm-hmm. to the machine, finding your place in the machine. And the machine just so happens to not have any spaces or to not have enough spaces as mm-hmm. of right now for queer people. And the problem with Darling in the Franks isn't that it is homophobic in a... Um, in a bigoted sense, it obviously wants Ikuno to be sympathized with. It wants Ikuno to be 
you know, a character that is liked and respected, but it lacks the, the it lacks the empathy and the imagination to imagine a better world for those queer characters. Because at the end of the day, it essentially says, oh yeah, gay people are totally fine as long as they're kind of off in their corner doing their own thing. That's cool. Um, Whatever. We don't really get or, or even or yeah, even like I'm, the more sort of uh, patronizing kind of like ah, oh, such a shame they were born this way, or they could contribute yeah, like, well, it, to meaningful society. And, and I don't even and I don't even I don't even think giving Ikuno that death sentence was even an overt statement on on. A, I think that was really just that was that's more the show just drawing on really really old tropes. And just kind of going with really familiar story right. beats. But the problem is, I don't think Darling and the Franks understands that those story mm-hmm. beats are the result of a society that has not made room for queer people to exist. Yeah, I would agree that. And it's so obsessed with its baby stuff <laughs> that the only vision it has for a queer character, even for a world that's 100 or 50 or whatever, how many years in the future where they just beat the alien overlords and it's literally, they can do anything. They can do absolutely anything with their new society. But as far as what the gay character does, eh, whatever. This, the same as always, I guess. They can they can go be a couple and be scientists or whatever. But really, we want to focus on the people that can have kids. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. Um, because if it and was that's like, the problem. So, that... so my take again, like I, I wasn't mad about the the confession that was actually the other show that i recorded with you guys um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the moment it's successive stuff that like surrounded it and the fact that the show is so quick to like drop something and pick something else up that i don't even believe it means to like james said it's just drawing on like tropes that are a production of society like a something that just comes from like societal norms um and i Mm. also don't think if it was like blatantly like don't be gay like it wouldn't have even hinted at her having a girlfriend right like it kind of just says like oh Naomi's available and Ikuno's available so like why not pair them together which is kind of what the show has been doing all along with the parasites so it's kind of like whatever yeah it's just another like it's just another kind of lazy because they you feel like they wanted to tie everything up really neatly so they're like, oh, here are two people, and they're kind of off, and we don't even know if Naomi's queer, but, like, let's give Ikuno a cute girlfriend, which is cool, or would have been cool if they'd paid any attention or had any empathy towards her character, like, overall. And yeah. this isn't even, I, it's I easy have, to point I out mean, with Ikuno, but this isn't even something that Frank's has been, that has been exclusive to Frank's treatment of her. It's, like, everyone. It is. I mean, really, this, the scene that, that settled it for me was it was in that confession scene because you're right, Emily, that her confession itself was, was pretty well done. Mm-hmm. The acting, the writing, that was all mm-hmm. good. But it was the moment where Ichigo said, oh, this is just like how I felt with Hiro. And it's like, no. No. <laughs> Being gay in a society that does not allow the ex- or that does not readily uh, support the expression of queerness is not the same thing as crushing on a guy that doesn't like Unless you, you happen to be part and, of, you know, an elite super soldier squad who are bred from birth to, you know, be both pissed on statement and also happens to be brainwashed, you know, to be really, you know, evil towards the heads, apparently. Uh, but anyway, uh, anyway yeah, I'm sure we'll talk I about have three things I need to say about this whole thing about Eco. First off, to follow your points there, James, Doc, and Emily, to me, I agree with you that I don't think this is 
I think there is an intent here, but it's not strictly to be homophobic. It's just homophobic by side effects as a result. But this is the big theory, so more pins. Pins flying everywhere here. Um, but to me, Frank's is, as I described to Alex Schmidt on Twitter, shout out to Alex, it is the Wily e. Coyote of anime. It's clever enough to lay traps and have designs, but it's completely and utterly incapable of understanding the, the consequential effects of those if, you know, designs and traps, and then only causes grievous injury to itself. So, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly that they did, you know, want Ikuno to be, you know, sympathised with and empathised with by the audience, but, well, as always, authorial intent does not match audience interpretation, and indeed they got quite the opposite, so uh, jolly good show there, Franks, well done. Second, I don't have an issue on paper with Akuno getting a girlfriend at the end of the show. Uh, be it even Naomi. But what I wanted to see, or what should have been seen, so that way it just wasn't like, you know, oh, this happened literally as she was, you know, pissing in a bedpan in her last days. I wanted her to be shown having a life with this relationship. Exactly. Yeah, like, here's my image, right? Here's how I would have done it. Have Naomi and Ikuno sat leaning on each other maybe you know like kuno's resting her back of her head on her you know naomi's chest or something like that. all they're leaning side by side under a tree reading reading is the one thing she has done throughout the show apart from of course confessing that she's a lesbian so finish the note of the show on that that she's reading with someone she can like you know be intimate with show her living the relationship not you know breathing her last in iv drips and shit jesus fucking christ i okay and then, lastly, so Ikuno's solution is, as I've discussed, a bit shit in terms of the fact that it doesn't do anything for her. And the thing is, they could have come up with so many other things that she could have had to do for the final part of this, you know, show. They could have, for example, I suggested, have her design a new super crop. And if you think that sounds crazy, Quorn is literally the result of that from the late 80s. So, you know, have Ikuno create some sort of superfood that solves all their food crisis. It grows in days, I don't know. Or alternatively, as another in-universe appropriation of what they've already established, you might recall in Zorome's focused episode that they had the medical machines that only work with pets. So how about having Yakuno get hold of one of those and learn to reprogram it so it can provide medical assistance for people? Because Lord knows none of them are fucking doctors. So if they could have a step up with that to give them proper medical care, that's something. It didn't need to be this particular solution, especially given how utterly unexplained the whole early aging process was. I mean, never mind the mechanics of it, it was never even explained why they did it. Are you telling me just so that way you know that they could keep the kids under control, or because they had to have a certain lifespan before they ran out being useless? Like, you remain... The key things having kids is that they were sterile... Not sterile, sorry. They were fertile. But you're fertile until you're, like, you know, in the menopause age when you're 50, so I don't get it. What the fuck was the point of any of this? But, but, but Shannon, you don't understand. They didn't have time for that because they really needed the episode where the boys and the girls split the house in half because uh, boys and girls are so weird. So, unfortunately, the show just couldn't... There wasn't enough room, man. There wasn't enough room. I'm, I'm really glad that all of you raised all the points that you did about it because uh, as I was kind of watching how her life ended, you know, I was, was thinking, uh, I was making my own evaluations of it according to my own kind of worldview. And I was thinking, well, oh good. Like, you know, she seems to have found some, some happiness, you know, she has, uh, 
a a girlfriend she has a life pursuit you know doing this research like she's not been killed uh but since you all were talking about it i had to recalibrate and think okay so what what are the show's kind of standards what what does the show think is important for you to do as a human being and according to those standards uh she did not live uh as good of a life you know as the rest of them and her life pursuit ended up being like something to further support uh the the norms that uh that the show's established and so you know based on all that stuff it is pretty disappointing in a lot of ways i i will just throw in a, a statement here to say that I'm not discrediting what she actually did diegetically as being important. I think that is fair for her to have done in the context of the show and the events. And at the same time, though, I think to myself that given how thinly the, you know, the early aging thing was established and sketched throughout the show's run, they could have dropped it entirely and it would have not bothered me in the slightest. I wouldn't have thought about it. So that all being said, I will again make a statement similar to what I said at the very beginning of this cast, which is that if you yourself, the, the listener, thought that, you, you know, Ikuno's relationship and where she ended up and her life was fine. I'm not going to disagree with you. I'm not going to say that you're wrong. Everyone can read into this however they want. And if you know, if you're happy that at least she got something in the end as opposed to nothing, or as I originally predicted, that we would literally have her die and then have everyone gathered around her grave and she would accomplish nothing, because I literally thought that's the pits that this show would sink to. <laughs> like, if you're happy with that, that's great. I'm glad for you. I'm not going to tell you differently, and I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. So, with all that done, let us get to the closing moments of episode 24. The final minutes. Oh, by the way, uh, Fatoshi, uh, being on brand, uh, is a baker (laughs) in this modern era. Fuck's sake. All that bread. All that bread. Yeah. From bread he was born, <laughs> and to bread he shall return. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Fatoshi also has a token uh, wife slash girlfriend who we've never met and don't even know the name of. So there's that. She doesn't even get a line uh, of no. dialogue. Um, there's a scene before uh, all this. Uh, I think before they they have the aged character designs when. Uh, Ichigo is, I guess, cleaning out Hero's room or Zero Two's room or just looking through their effects. And she finds the picture book and finds the drawing that Hero made mm. at the end. And she just says, oh. God, you suck. <laughs> it made me so happy. I'm like, yes, yes, you do. Very, very on point. <laughs> yeah. That entirely accurate statement, not delivered with as much venom as it should have been. But again, token victories take them where you can get them. So, after all that, time advances. Uh, actually, no, sorry, it is indeed hinted at very strongly, if not outright confirmed, that Goro is the father of Ichigo's child. I originally predicted, because this is one of my two, like, you know, absolute pit endings that Franks would do, that it would turn out that Hero would have come back somehow without Zero Two, she would have given a life, and then cut seven years later, and it would have been Hero who was the father. Thankfully, no. Nishigori... And the writers did not go that far. They did not go so far as to writing something so atrociously awful as that. Holy fucking shit. I would have I would have screamed if that had been the case. But that's not what we got, so... Whew. If I can't see Zero Two smile for me, I might as well be dead. 
flash forward to him with a nice family of some with someone else. I mean, that would be pretty on brand. This is why I thought that. This is why I thought that was going to happen because, like, every time I thought this show could not possibly get worse, it did. It somehow kept innovating in being fucking shite. I don't know how you do that. That's an impressive talent to have. It's like Adam Sandler wrote an anime. Holy fuck. (laughs) Just, God. Right, okay. So, we fast forward. Um, There's been, by the way, a Sakura tree throughout this show. Uh, So, when I say show, I mean episode. Uh, that started off as like a sapling and then actually grew into a full-blown thing. So this is meant to be uh, a representative, I assume, of new life. because Made like, from the minerals of Zero Two's body. Supposedly, yeah, something like that. Um, so Zero Two and Hero Souls uh, did indeed survive the Vermin Counter, and we get like a montage of time advancing as, you know, cities are built up behind the tree. So we're getting back to a relatively, you know, standard way of living. Uh, the souls end up going into the tree and this doesn't happen immediately I wouldn't believe this literally happened when they possessed the bodies of existing children but a pink haired girl trips over one of the tree stumps uh, and bumps into a kid who has short black hair and is reading a book and the kid helps her up and they ask what each other's names are and then we get a closing caption from the show which is and a new story begins and you know what? It does. It's called but. It's called Banana Fish, and we're watching it on Stream of Thought Season 3. <laughs> Thank fuck for that. Um, by the way, I have to say, like, there's a reason they cut off the names. Because if it turned out it was Hero, like, that's fine. But then you have Zero Two, whose name was literally, you know, as I said, the name of her is when she was a slave. Which he never changed for some stupid fucking reason. I- I'm still mad about that. Because it's the name her boyfriend gave her. Yep. Great. <laughs> Yeah, you can you can read you can read the views as I'm just her boyfriend and also point. her torturer, whom she thanked at one point. I mean, would it show. would it have been worse if they called her Omi, like everyone kind huh. of expected to happen? Huh. But didn't. I mean, it just, that'd be kind of weird because you'd be like, "Hey, Dan, yeah. how are you doing?" Like, uh, <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, Phantom got this right. I don't know how relative to this. I can't believe you're because saying at least this. because at least I got a new name. Erin, and it one lesser removed, but at least it was a new name. So, I can't believe that Frank's is literally worse than a B-Train production, at least in some respects. Who'd have fucking far? But I'm not wrong, am I, Doc? No. Exactly. <laughs> and so, ladies, gentlemen, others, that's it. That's Darling in the Franks 24 and the show as a whole concluded. May it never, ever return to haunt, you know, the halls of Crunchyroll or other streaming services, ever. Ever, ever, ever. Nope, no thank you. When you um, when you beat the new Kill the Kill game, at the end, it's going to have a teaser trailer for Darling in the Franks 2. Well, I know what I'm not buying for Christmas, then. <laughs> so, okay, uh, before we actually get into broad thoughts on the series itself will of course rate this episode oh, right. uh, out right. of five so uh, Emily would you like to go first and tell us what you thought about this episode on its own so I couldn't like Racing out five. get mad at this episode because again like I found mm. so many parts of it unintentionally hilarious but then thinking back on it I'm like how many actual parts of it did I remember which is not much I remembered very little individually. Of it, I don't know, I don't know, so yeah. I give it, yeah, 
I'm going to give it two broken mirrors out of five. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Good. Uh, James, what about you? How would you rate this episode out of five? Yeah, just like Emily said, I mean, it's forgettable. You know, it is... Um, the 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 montage stuff is so trite mm-hmm. that it's it's harmless but in kind of an annoying way like it, it's it's about as as stale as that bread that Fatoshi <laughs> has been keeping in his bed for the past ten oh, years. <laughs> so I'm I'm also gonna give it uh, two sick handlebar mustaches. Uh, out of five. <laughs> I I have to. Because uh, yeah. I have to apologize to everyone because I feel bad now for having come up with the Do Chan joke. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was taken too far. I've had a couple of good running gags throughout this show's run, such, such as Quaaludes and uh, the Techno <laughs> Quaaludes. Oh, uh, Mitsu's Quaaludes. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking pill poppy problem. <laughs> but um, yeah, I apologize for that. Um, Being a doc. father cured him of his drug addiction. No. Uh... <laughs> Well, okay. Uh, well, I mean, Fatoshi cured his eating disorder. <laughs> oh, can because... I just say, right? That was <laughs> can I just say that was definitely not due to, like, you know, the parasites aging early. That was just him having bulimia, as I originally suspected. In which case, let me give you know the show the door barred shotgun of you know the gesture. Go fuck yourself. Fuck's sake. Ugh. So I guess if I had to put a rating on this uh i would go with a two out of five but uh just everything about this episode angered me tremendously and i'm gonna sound like a person that like oh well what did you expect what did you want it to be like you'd never be satisfied with anything and i guess that's true because they've put themselves into this corner like the show was so like the finale rather was so kind of mundane and mediocre and inconsequential that like it made me mad that it wasn't worse. Like I wanted it to just go out in a yeah ba- giant ball of fire, like just with batshit ridiculousness. Are you sure you'd been happy though with seeing Yakuno's gravestone as opposed to actually seeing her at least being alive? No, I would be. I would be a different. I would be a different kind of mad. And I could wholeheartedly, like, get behind hating this show, whereas it's disappointing in a different way because it didn't give me that kind of visceral satisfaction. It Mm. just kind of did the most obvious things it could do, in my opinion, and also tried to, like, play on kind of this, or create nostalgia for the characters and what they have been through and past events and places and because i've spent so much fucking time with these characters it started you know i felt it and i'm like no i hate you Mm. it made me feel yucky and Mm. uh also it played upon me being a father it's like no Mm. like i just i don't want to associate the two i mean george is getting upset because the two worlds are colliding (laughs) like no so yeah because of all these things, uh, I'm going to go a bit lower, uh, and I'm going to give this uh, 1.5 anglerfish out of 5. Nice. Nice. Okay. Um, for me, 
I still stand by what I said at the very beginning, which is that elements of this in a vacuum would have been great had the show... Like, this This is the funny thing, like, as we've done Stream Before going along, our feelings on the episodes have, of course, naturally and intentionally been burdened by what's come before. Like, the earlier episodes, you know, we still had feelings about how the way things may go. That's, of course, no longer the case. So, while I do appreciate what they were trying to do with these characters, and Lord knows in a differently written show... I'd have been happy with it. I mean, they could have done things in this very final episode to crowbar back some goodwill from me, like with Ikuno. They could have done so many things differently right this last minute in the 11th hour, but they didn't. So, for me, in the end, I am going to award episode 24 of Darling in the Franks 1.75 anglerfish-shaped pieces of bread. Because I don't know why they were shaped like fish. Is that meant to be biblical? That's like <laughs> loaves and fishes. The fu- fuck, I don't know. Ah, my mind's going to strange places now, trying to understand this fucking show. But yeah, one. I'm going to go with one point seven five. Not the worst episode of the show, but it just goes out with a whimper rather than the bang. The hero two stuff was just tween crap. I did not give a flying shit about any of it. It managed to further muddle messages in the show that I thought were clear. Yeah, exactly. Why? Why couldn't? Why couldn't this episode also be called "Darling in the Franks"? Because why not? There are two episodes already called "Darling in the Franks." You know what they should have done? <laughs> Each episode, like the first episode, of "Darling in the Franks," should have been called "Darling in the Franks" with two X's. Then the second should have been three. The third should have been four. Yeah. It should repeat it until the end. <laughs> so you're like, no, th- this one they could have just called it "Darling in the Fucks," <laughs> but with yep. two X's. Um. I guess that's the porn parody that they're inevitably going to Well, that's episode 10, Darling in the Franks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyway, um, we've discussed the episode itself now. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a quick break. And then we're going to actually come back after the break to discuss the series as a whole. So stay tuned, folks. uh, After which, there'll also be bonus content for you to enjoy. So stick around. And now, ladies, gentlemen, and MBs, I present to you Jim Downey's review of Darling in the Franks. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and envies. Welcome back to Stream of Thought here at Waridesha. We're back to discuss the entirety of Darling in the Franks, give our broad perspectives on the show overall, and then we're just going to, you know, let it frisk off into the distance. It's a land of, you know, irrelevance where it belongs. I mean, my box of shits is empty at this point. I can afford to give no more, so there we go. So, 
who would like to go first on discussing broad ideas about the show and what they thought of it? I mean, I can go first, just because I think you guys came up with a pretty apt description when you were talking about the way that the show treats cloning, in that, like, you were joking that you didn't think that uh, Franks actually understood how cloning worked, because it ended up being, like, a diluted, like, photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy with uh, mm -hmm. you know, from the Sarah Kerrigan oh. to <laughs> zero two to the nines, and that's kind of how I see this entire show. Um, it was made <laughs> gunbuster to die. No, buster that's to the this. thing, though. It was made by people who obviously like do love anime and have watched a lot of it and have produced the those anime themselves, and everything in this show seemed like it had a reference point elsewhere, not just with the mythology and the floral references and all that stuff, but just in general, what it took from other shows, other anime shows. Uh, it just came out being like a very weird photocopy of those shows that's been like, you know... It's been copied one too many times where you can't really tell what is in the, the photograph anymore. Um, mm. that's kind of how I, I that's kind that. of how I saw this show just because like a lot of the, a lot of the reference points, even things that Nishigori himself has worked on, it felt like he didn't really understand what made those so emotionally impactful, right? Or what made those things so, um, emotionally resonant with viewers and I think maybe that is another indicator of the troubled production that they had and just in terms of maybe there was infighting behind the scenes it sounds like there was from stuff that's kind of trickling out now in terms of how people wanted to mm -hmm. what what they wanted to do with the narrative at all uh, so and you can see that you can see where the desire to be a little bit more serious and introspective butts heads with the desire to be bombastic and comedic and over the top. And when you put those two things mm -hmm. together, if you are putting them together, it's not impossible to have a show with both, but it requires a very deft hand to switch between like a moment of, of stillness and contemplation to a moment of bombast and no one working on this show had that depth touch in order well, there were to more make it co more cooks resonant. in the kitchen this so, time <laughs> it's just sad yeah i i would argue they did that with kill the kill though which is all the more surprising oh no yeah like, I, I mean i I, I absolutely love yeah i absolutely love kill the kill it's not something that nishigori worked on unless he did animation yeah for it. but true. um yeah it's kill the kill i think is a good example where you can have like still these really cool character moments that are, you know, serious in context, and then have, like, some zany antics the next minute. It doesn't seem out of place. I think another thing that did happen with this show is that for... It was too... Like, it was too similar in chunks. So, like, the first part of the show ended up being about um, a little bit more introspective, and then when it got into the crazy 
like the crazier stuff it then became Mm -hmm. very disjointed between the two so like Mm -hmm. it really did seem like the show started off doing one thing and then swapped to something else entirely instead of going back and forth between the two from the get-go i hear you on that Uh, all right um I'm gonna lay. In, I'm gonna get into my big theory now. I'm gonna get this out of the way before I forget about it. Mm. All right, let's mess <laughs> up the popcorn. Oh, I feel like I should have brought food. <laughs> so, I'm gonna discuss this in two parts because I need to firstly shore up the idea I pitched way back in episode 17, which has had some confirmation, uh, which is that Frank's perspective is that children are the future and every other future is irrelevant. Now. Now the show's complete, I actually have had to think back to various scenes throughout the show's run that I think support this, but they also then tie into my second point, which I'll reveal now, is that I think that Franks also takes a very disdainful look, generally speaking, towards the idea of sedentary lifestyles and pleasure. It's more interested in a life, or sees more virtue in a life that is one of hard work, uh, dirt farming being one of the main things in that, and also starting fresh. So, hear me out on this. This is going to take a bit, but I'm going to go for it bit by bit. First off, I'm going to very quickly restate that, yes, there were the camera angles, like things with Kokoro. Kokoro's our discussion, like, you know, about kids of the future. The stuff I've discussed previously on stream before. But then I thought back to myself, wait a minute. There are other ways that the camera or the, the narrative or the subtext has shown that... Well, okay, let me start fresh on this by saying that sex is, like, as a concept, like, sex is a thing. You have sex for two reasons. One, because you want a kid. Or two, because it's fucking awesome. Because you enjoy having sex. It's pleasurable activity. So, you might recall that Zero Two is sterile. She can't have children. But she has at least, you know, had a darling in her franks at some point during her life. That's been proven by how she's reacted and how she talks about it. Like, she wouldn't be that well-versed in the idea of it if she hadn't at least gone through it herself. That's something you and I speculated on previously, Doc, with what happened in, I think it was right. episode 14? Or it might have been 13, even. It was around that time when she does try to, you know, do it with Hero, and he, you know, declines. So, I thought back to that scene, and I realised, first off, think of the way that Zero Two is framed in this. Like, this is the point when she's at her most quote-unquote demonic. She says, make me a human being. Sleep with me and make me human. Now, from her perspective, she can't, of course, be sleeping with heroes to have a kid. So it must be for the pleasure aspects. But the way that that scene was framed and shot and the way that Hero reacted, the pleasure element was treated as something that was heinous and something awful. Now, I will confess that there is the context, of course, that she's not doing this necessarily for the right reasons with Hero. But at the same time... It was the show, as far as I'm concerned, that point said that okay, sex as a pleasurable activity in of itself is of no benefit to anyone. It's a bad thing. Look at this character here who's trying to tempt our hero into sleeping with her, and she looks positively demonic. She's got the horns out like it's a temptation into sin, quite literally. I mean, she is only after all, she's a demon. Now, if you think that's just an isolated instant, let me then talk about Mitsu and Kokoro. Now, let me get this right out of the bat. Right out of the gate, right now, I have no interest in ever seeing a version of Darling the Franks in which we actually do see them fuck. No way. Not as far as I live and breathe. Not while there's a hole in my ass. Are you sure? Not even... Yes. (laughs) Zorame's just like hiding in the closet, just like... Zorame will be the one with the night vision goggles. 
You know that full well. Um, I'm not even interested necessarily in, you know, like those old romance cliches of like, you know, the woman grasping on the bed sheets really tightly as, you know, the axe climaxes, blah de blah blah that usual shit. But what you never hear Mitsuru and Kokoro ever talk about is the actual axe itself and the pleasure there that comes from it. They don't, you know, there isn't like a post moment in which they look at each other and say that was incredible or anything like that. None of it. It cuts literally from the moment before they do it to the moment after. And that's it. We never see sex as a pleasurable act ever treated, you know, with anything other than disdain. Nine Alpha, his perspective is that, you know, it's a disgusting thing. So, from those points, in addition to what I've said before, this just reinforces me the idea of Frank's being about, you know, kids of the future, and any means thereof of getting to it, like the actual acts of enjoying, you know, sex, is at best something that is irrelevant, and at worst something that is utterly reprehensible. Because that also factors into how the show treats Ikuno. If Ikuno was ever to, you know, have sex... It wouldn't be for the acts of reproduction, it would be the acts of pleasure. But, you know, that never happens. It never even entertains the idea of her doing that. So, so that's the evidence that I would present so far and to shore up my idea of, you know, kids of the future and all of the means or all of the reasons for having sex in the first place are irrelevant or disgusting or a mixture thereof. Before I continue, do you feel I'm off base on making that assertion given the scenes I pointed out there? And the way that, you know, they choose to admit certain things or not include certain details. Yeah, um, yes. The, I mean, I've never thought about all, it that way. I don't have way, any disagreement with, like, I can totally any of the see where you're, what you're getting at. Pieces of evidence that you're pointing to and what you're saying that they, that they mean. I think the, the only disagreement I would have with your assertion is that, uh, Frank's, that, that this speaks to Frank's, like, aboutness because, I just feel like it was it was about something for a few episodes and then it became about something else and there's just to say the entire show is meant to like culminate in a certain message for me in my opinion like it, it that's a hard pill to swallow I can't wrap my arms around everything that it's trying to that everything that happened and say like okay here's like here's the one true sort of message or the through line the yeah. through I think that's the right the through yeah. Because, like, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, if you were to say to me, like, this is what the last third of it was about, like, the final eight episodes, like, sure, like, yes. But I just, you know, the first part of the show, like, they don't kind of build to that or, or, you know, it's not like, I mean, this is all interesting and everything, but what is it paying off from the beginning? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to just say right ahead of anything else is that I don't think this theory is bulletproof. I'm just pitching out there as an interesting point of discussion because in a weird kind of like, you know, decoding the Rosetta Stone way, this all just kind of came crystal to me. And it'll become clearer when I get to the wider point, which is Frank's, you know, idea of sedentary lifestyles, which I'll get to in a moment. Uh, James, do you have any thoughts on what I've said thus far? Um, Yeah, I have some thoughts, especially in regards to how... And I, I kind of want to hear the, the the whole of your your ideas before I get too far into it. But one thing I've I've been thinking about a lot is the way that anime tends to treat sex in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, by which right. I mean it doesn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If it if it's not a, if it's not a hentai, right? 
um, characters that are in a relationship, usually the, the focus on the relationship, and originally one of the things that I was initially kind of looking forward to with Darling in the Franks, is that in a lot of anime, the focus on the relationship is on courtship. Mm-hmm. And usually the story concludes or the story brushes over the uh, it concludes before getting into or it brushes over the actual details of being in a relationship. You know, the anime ends when the two characters finally confess their love. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are exceptions. Right? You have Clan Ad, which, you know, does some things. But for mm-hmm. the most part, you know, a lot of the, the teen focused, high school focused anime romance, it's more about the infatuation than it is the relationship Mm -hmm. um and obviously you know sex isn't is usually just completely avoided yeah there are characters that are horny all the time but i you know i can't remember the last time outside of this show i saw any characters engaged in a consensual sexual relationship that wasn't played for laughs or that wasn't just used as a joke Mm -hmm. um it's just not something that the media that the medium tends to pay a lot of attention to yeah um for a lot of reasons that i think are way too deep to get into right now but point being um i think it's really interesting what you what you just said about how the show is trying to essentially dictate the 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 proper way to handle a sexual relationship Mm -hmm. um you know uh casual non-committed sex for the purpose of pure pleasure can be seen as wasteful or it can be seen as self-destructive in zero two's case. Yep. You know, we got that, that one scene where she's literally haunted by all the other men she's quote unquote piloted with and used up. Um, so I think yes, there is kind exactly. of, you're right. There's a, there's very much a, a kind of a scarlet letter thing going on where zero two is meant to regret having treated piloting so cavalierly in the past. Indeed. Um, I guess. Well, and, and, and I'll, I'll stop before I get too into it because I want to hear the rest of your thoughts. But what I'm interested to talk about or to kind of explore more is the fact that it's very strange that Hero and Zero Two's relationship, they make a point to get across that she's uh, infertile. Zero Two cannot have children. Yeah. So even though the show is venerating their committed, monogamous, treacly, codependent romance. Yeah. It's it's odd to me that for a show that is so about making children the focal point for building up future generations, that's what you do. If you want to contribute to society in a positive way, the best thing you can do is to have kids. Yep. But it's so odd to me then, that the, and, and, and I'll definitely let you continue, but it's, it's so odd to me that the central relationship of the show is defined by two teenagers who can't have kids or would not be able to have kids the traditional way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I'm curious to know what you guys think of what that, how that complicates the possible themes or how that misconstrues some of the ideas it's trying to get across. Yeah. So just to add some further points to support my argument here, going back to Mitsu and Kokoro, they have, like, she is pregnant before they have the marriage. Now, that is literally the day after, but it traditional like you know romantic circles it would be you know you get married then you you know don't have sex outside of wedlock and then you have a kid but they do it backwards why are they doing it backwards because that is literally the point all con- all context of relationship as far as darling in the franks is concerned is secondary to the acts of having children in and itself even marriage even the most traditional form of having a relationship is secondary 
it doesn't matter. And then I said before, like, you know, how there is no future for those who cannot have children in this particular show. Hero and Zero Two both die, quote unquote, when this episode ends. They sacrifice themselves to ensure a future, you know, for the rest of the people back on Earth. Now, Zero Two could not have children. As you've said, James, and there's something as I pointed out on the episode, which I found really strange, like that she literally would just bring that up out of nowhere. Zero Two is sterile. Now, maybe she isn't, maybe she doesn't know. I don't know. But let's take it at face value. Let's assume she is correct. Why bring that up? Why even make that point at all? And then I thought to myself, what about the other characters in this show who could not or would not have children? Dr. Franks. Much of a twat as he was, he did not want children. He is now dead. All of the adults who were immortal who could not have children are now gone. There is not a single character in the show with the possible exception of Nana and Hatchie because of this 11th hour revelation that they are in Morseland, if it's the same method, they must therefore be sterile. But there's not a single character otherwise who survives this show's run, or at least there's not a death's door like Ikuno is, who, you know, couldn't have children. This is literally as close as the show will get to being textual about the fact that, you know, if you can't have kids, there is no future for you. Quite literally. Or, if I can alter a slightly alternative reading, because I think it actually ties back to what you said about the way the show values very specific lifestyles in regards to how you spend your time. Maybe it's less there is no future for you, but it's more if you're not having kids, then you need to commit yourself to supporting the society yep. the, wherein the, the people that are having kids can thrive. Yeah. So if you're not going to have kids, then you might as well commit your life to science or commit your life to the military, or you might as well be doing something Make that yourself supports useful. the people that have kids. Yeah. Or Ikuno, or, yeah. you know, yeah. This is why I'm of the opinion, and I'm going to say as well, like, as, as a cisette man, I don't mean to disparage people who do find Franks incredibly homophobic. Like, if you think it's homophobic, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think your reading is entirely valid. But speaking from my perspective... I don't think it is deliberately homophobic. I think that it's homophobic by accident, by the sin of hubris as a result of this, because it also similarly punishes heterosexual couples such as Hero and Zero Two. Like, it takes Hero down with her. Like, he could have kids, but his chosen partner, the one he is wedlocked to for life, cannot. So he must go with her, because he will not be productive later on. Am I wrong? I'm not, am I? <laughs> like, if any point I'm chatting shit, please tell me. I'm more than happy to, you know, be criticized. I don't want this to be true, because this is like the X-Range Franks is basically a piece of propaganda written in the fucking 1950s. So, buckle up. It's only going to get worse from here. So, there's that. And now, I suppose I should talk about the second element, which is the idea of pleasure and sedentary lifestyles. And I'm going to make a, a statement here that explains, or at least to me explains, Verm's presence in the show. Oh, yeah. I think this is right. If you say what I think you're going to say. Verm is the internet. Did not think you were going to say Yeah, that. I was right. not expecting that. <laughs> All right. Allow me to explain. We saw in episode 10, this is actually a thing that kind of triggered my thinking on this. We saw an average couple in Frank's world, um, the show that is, which was, you know, the old lady and the man. And I joked that he was hooked up to the Oculus Rift of the future. Well, that's literally what he's doing. He is living a life of pure pleasure through a digital world and not interacting physically with people. Now, we, of course, wrote off the whole politics of the show when Verm came in because they're aliens, but I didn't feel satisfied with that explanation. I didn't feel like, you know, that works. 
there's there's too much deliberate coding of you know children of the future to have Verm suddenly come in and just wipe that all away. I felt like we were giving the you know the creators an, you know a guess out of jail free card. So I thought about this and I thought, okay, there's that, and then let's think about the Franks themselves. I complained previously, and this is me really reading very hard into it, so I, I will confess this is me stretching a bit. But you might recall a lot of the times in this stream I thought I've complained that it never seemed like the Franks, or the pilots of the Franks, were any real danger when things went awry. You know, like when Strelizia's getting the shit kicks out of in episode 6. There's no internal damage, there's no immediate threat to them. There's no immediate threat to Goro apart from, you know, late, later suffocation. To me, they're playing a video game. I'm serious, like, it, they, they're not engaged in any serious stakes this is why also it never feels like there's any stakes in the early part of the show because we never see the adults until episode 10 uh, there was that one episode with the i think it was the stretchy klaxosaur the one that was like you know able to change its shape it was going after the s planning installment what was that for doesn't matter because that's not the point the point was that all these kids were like living a life of you know going out and killing shit in mechs which is i would argue for the average person in japan like, especially if you're, you know, a 17-year-old boy, probably quite, you know, appealing as a concept. Bear with me here, I've got some more thoughts on this. Then let's talk about the idea of food. How many times in the earlier part of the show did we see all of the kids, like, you know, at the tables in, you know, Misselheim, eating incredible feasts? Like, you know, they had, like, apples, pork, meat, you fucking name it, it was laid out for them. And now, in the later half of the show, they're eating from the dirt, they're eating potatoes freshly, you know, farmed out. Frank's also like with with sci-fi. Sci-fi tends to be a contemporary, a, a warning about contemporary situations, like you know, with the way our world is now leading into the future. So there is obviously the very clear analog to you know declining birth rates, people not having kids. You know, the thing, the evidence I presented about sex with pleasure being you know terrible because it's not actually leading to children being born. There's that, but then there's also just the idea of having sedentary lifestyles in general and being lazy as the show presents it because the kids like sure their lives in a broad sense from our audience perspective is shit because they are disposable soldiers but from day to day they get fed they get pampered and they get to blow shit up in giant robots that seems pretty cool to me i would probably not hate that if i was not aware of the wider context it's the, the way you just presented it really just kind of clicked with me in that you know all of the all of the the dumb controversial stuff that the show accidentally waded into um, because its its worldview is so limited. Um, it's all a result of the fact that I think at the end of the day, you're right, the message of this show isn't... I don't even think it's, you know, necessarily, if you don't have babies, you don't matter. I think the message they were trying to go for after hearing that breakdown that you just provided is, all right, all of you mecha anime fanboys and fangirls that spend all of your time just like playing video games and and eating and you know um living like college students i guess um it's time to grow up and contribute to society yep and what and the show lays out here are the ways you can do that if you're a woman go have a baby Unless you're gay, then go be a scientist, I guess. Yeah. Um, if you're, you know, if you're a fat boy that loves bread, go bake bread. If you're Miku and Zorome, be teachers, I guess. Um, you know, or if you're a hero in Zero Two, I, you know, you can maybe make their, 
their final battle is like analogous to like go serve in the in the military or go serve you know yeah. go go you know put your life on the line to help defend the country it's a very conservative old school way of saying all right kids you've you've had your fun you've grown up you've or you know you've you messed around living in the dorms and you know sleeping around and uh playing video games all day but now it's time to be a real adult quote unquote and go do the set things that we or I or however you want to frame the show's perspective, this, the set things that Frank says, here's what it means to be a part of society. Yeah. You need to work with the earth. You need to get a job that is, you know, demonstrably impactful on the world around you. You need to have kids if you can and have as many as possible. And when, when you frame it that way, it I almost have to laugh because it's so naively like it's so boring pathetically simple statement yeah it's such it's such an obvious like grumpy dad thing to say you know um put your hands in the dirt yeah Yeah. exactly Uh, as you said when i was a kid you know i had to go grow my own food and cook it with my bare hands it's like okay i have just one final point to make before you guys go on this just to finally short my theory now, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but at the time that the show begins, um, when we, you know, first meet Hero as the point of contact, it's around 2055. Is that correct? I I don't remember. Let's, we'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, the timeline of the show is completely Yeah, it's me, so, so condensed. Because I remember that in episode 19, when we got Frank's flashback, he started his research in 2025, and I'm fairly certain yes. the last date we see is either 2055 or 2057. So I'm going to say the 2050s. And here's the thing, right? Let's take Terminator 2 as an example. It's my favorite film of all time, and I love bringing it up. But Terminator 2, right, the, the post-apocalyptic future of that, where Skynet, you know, rules the wastelands, is in 2032. And sometimes in in films like that, the dates, you know, the shelf life of that goes out very fast because like have Demolition Man, which is set in the post-apocalyptic Los Angeles future of 1996. Oh, no. <laughs> Los Angeles definitely looks like that now. Yes. I have to fight for my life every day. <laughs> um, but my point, my point is this, right? I thought to myself, okay, when you write sci-fi, generally speaking, you want it to be a warning about current contemporary situations taken to their extreme in the future. Uh, Altered Carbon is the idea, like the novel by Richard Morgan, apart from being, you know, a novel that is also like a noir detective story in which there's some pretty graphic sex scenes in it, like Jesus fucking Christ, uh, and also some very violent scenes, is about the idea, like, you know, of what would happen if we could literally download our personalities into our bodies and make ourselves look the way we wanted to. And there's a ton of sci-fi out there that is like that in the terms of, here's a current thing that we've got. What if we took it to the next level? The Handmaid's Tale, currently airing on, I think it's Amazon. Like, I read the original novel of that. And that is literally, you know, conservative ideas about sex and such taken to its end result when you have declining fertility. You could literally compare textually Handmaid's Tale to Darling and the Franks for both their readings on, like, you know, what happens with declining fertility and what it means to have children. So I thought to myself, okay, this is too close. I complained previously that Franks need to be sent of like 2,255 for it to make more sense. But if you assume that the writers are not complete idiots and instead have a more sinister agenda, which is a bit of a leap, I will admit, why is it that far away? Like, oh, sorry, that close, rather, I mean to say. 
And it hit me. The target audience for this particular show will be, I'd say, 17-year-old boys as of this time of recording, which is 2018. Does that seem like a reasonable guess? Yeah, like uh, 15 to 17, mid-teenage, young. Yeah. How old will, How old will these kids be in 2055? They will be in their 50s to 60s. And do you recall the adult that we met in episode 10? Zora May's, you know, lady figure that he meets, you know, the old lady. That lady is meant to reflect the, the people who are watching this show right now as a warning to what they will become. I'm dead fucking serious with that statement. No, absolutely. I, I definitely think that the whole point of painting that dystopic society of, you know, VR addicted, ageless, you know, passionless uh, people is was definitely to go, this is what happens when this society, you know, yeah. takes this obsession with technology and with perpetuating their youth and with refusing to have to grow up and experience hardship this is what happens when that gets taken to its extreme. Yeah, that is literally the sci-fi element of it. Of here's the thing right now, what if we took it to its next level? Because they won't have kids, they can't have kids, they're sterile, they're uninterested in their partners, and they spend all their time in the future Oculus Rift, probably, you know, fucking... Like, I've seen that Anime Expo video, I know what that's about. Literally, it could not come up a better slash worse time. So, that's my grand theory of this. Franks is advocating for a return to basics, start fresh, literally for its apocalypse, which is get back to the fucking dirt, build from scratch, have children, wipe the slate clean. Hero Durden. Exactly. <laughs> I will say one final thing on this, though, and I'm going to... Uh, is that if that is the case, and I admit this is a lot of reading onto this, this is a real stretch, and I'm not going to pretend this is bulletproof, ironcast, or even necessarily true, or what the author's intended... If that is all the case, it completely ignores the real-day context of why things are the way they are. I mentioned previously that why are people not having children? Because it's too expensive. And let me tell you right now, I complained previously about Kokoro, you know, ignoring the contents of the, you know, the pregnancy book. Like, did she never say, for example, we don't have nappies, etc., etc.? And yeah, there were apologetic arguments that waved that away. But this is the thing about the show. There's so much of this that if you just turned it on its head... You could make that into something interesting that would be contemporary. What if Mitsu and Kokoro sat down and said, we do want to have a kid, but our environment, our world, our society is not built for it. And then they discuss why it's not built for it and how they can change that for the better. Does that sound familiar to, you know, how things are right now? They could have literally, with just the tiniest of tweaks, changed Franks from a steaming pile of dog shit that is just literally like <laughs> one of those you know, millennials are buying too much avocado toast articles, as far as anime goes, into something that actually meant something to the very generation it's trying well, to preach to. Well, you could to. say that it still does, that you just need a couple revolutionaries like Hero and Zero Two to wipe away the current order and structure, so then to return society back to the its roots of goodness. Um, I was just going to say, I think, uh, you know... Um, shout on exactly what you were speaking to. The problem with this kind of allegory is, I think, a problem that comes up in a lot of conservative propaganda. And listeners, when I say conservative, I'm not claiming that the people at Trigger or Cloverworks or Nishigori, I'm not saying any of these people are like right-wing Nazis or anything like that. Uh, I think the views in the show are much more kind of good old-fashioned family values conservative, um, not 
kind of wants to stick with the status quo, wants to go back to the way that things were. Nothing, yeah, so just don't, you know, don't take me out of context here. But I think the problem with a lot of conservative propaganda is because those fears of uh, seismic change, especially societal, structural, um, in the way that we look at gender identity, sexual identity, the fear, the fears that um, kind of conservative viewpoints have about those changes, um, whenever I see them reflected in anime or movies or books, it's always um, the, the source of that change or the cause of that change is either not addressed or it is blamed on either a shady secret organization slash big government or it's because of the next generation and their too progressive, too radical, too weird ideas, too lazy, too self-centered. The things that, that, that cause those changes in society that conservative propaganda wants to fight against are always someone else's fault. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's, the young, it's the young kids who are ruining society, essentially. And if we could just go back to how it was in my day when we grew up – uh, moved out of our parents' houses, got jobs, there as many had kids. If we, if we, yeah, if we just went mm-hmm. back to that, then everything would be good again. And the problem with that, that, that type of propaganda, like you said, is it completely ignores the very complicated, very nuanced, and um, oftentimes sourced directly from that conservative generation. Those problems that, or the 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 issues in society that lead to those changes, you know, it's like how it, one could very much make the argument that the whole, you know, it's like you said, the whole reason people aren't having kids is because the previous generation fucked the economy up so bad that it's just impossible to have kids yep. or, you know, the older generation that has kind of mandated the, the, the way society and James, the way that just, the workplace. Just, since, just since, I have to reiterate. It would have been so easy for Franks to lead this because the environment in which the kids live in, in Misselheim, is so utterly antithetical to raising children. Like, mm-hmm. can you imagine, like, if Kokoro had had that kid and Papa and Ape never found out and she just suddenly requisitioned one day for nappies? It wouldn't have happened. Like, this is how easily, how easily you could have turned this on its head to be contemporary and relevant as opposed to being written as if that was from the fucking 1950s. That's the maddening thing about this. Like, if there's one thing I've learned from watching this show, is that so oftentimes when I've complained about characters, you know, doing shit that doesn't make sense, A, it's often because of an agenda, and B, it's so easy. Like, I literally fought some of this shit up while I've been, you know, a, like, lying in bed or just kicking back listening to music. Like, I'm a random commodity who's never written anything, you know, relevant this entire fucking life. I literally fought this shit up on the fly. So if people want to make the excuse, like, you know, that this show was just phoned in, I would agree half-heartedly on that, and I would say, but there's a very clear through line to this, at least to me, that suggests that they had an agenda at mind. So, as far as I'm concerned, they could have leaned into all of the stuff that would have been relevant so easily, but they chose to take a different bent on it that is utterly irrelevant. I mean, I think part of the problem there is that a lot of times people uh who are writing these types of shows like older people might not fully understand the nuances of the situation Mm -hmm. because they 
uh, didn't have to live through it themselves or you can't like it's really difficult as a human. I'm not making excuses for them. I think this is a huge problem that needs to be addressed just generally, like in, in the US, in Japan, um, in a lot of different places where this kind of culture clash is happening within one society between the older generation and the younger generation. There's a very kind of clear divide between the two. Um, it's really difficult to step outside of your perspective and see it from someone's perspective who's basically had to live like an entirely different, uh, through entirely different circumstances mm -hmm. and is faced with different circumstances within their own future. I do think it's interesting if this is the route that the show is taking that they make it, they make an express point repeatedly throughout the alien arc like that's tacked on the back end of the show mm -hmm. um nana and hachi say it the verm themselves say it where they're like they're like you're choosing the most difficult path right that's full of like pain and heartache mm -hmm. and you're choosing this life of pain basically um and that's that's kind of the the extra like this isn't going to be easy but it's totally going to be worth it mm -hmm. because this is this is the right call and we're not saying that it's going to be easy it's going to be super hard and you're not really prepared for it but you're going to make it it's going to be okay yeah uh that kind of thing is particularly hilarious to me if this is the route <laughs> the show is going just because they tack they they made sure to tack on that extra insurance right yeah. so when people are like this is hard like it's like yes but it'll be worth it i but promise the, like, just trust me like, the emotional rewards and gains that you will make will be exponentially greater than those yeah that you could exactly have with just like you know being hooked up to the experience machine mm -hmm. yeah. i mean it's the anime equivalent of when you're at like a family gathering and you know being in my in my mid-20s i can relate to this kind of personally it's it's the equivalent uh of when you're at like a family gathering and some older family member is like complaining about all how all the young kids have to live at their parents houses these days and you know i never had to do I that do. when i was a kid i'm doing that right now and it's like, well, also, when you were younger, uh, rent mm -hmm. didn't cost thousands of dollars a month. Mm -hmm. And uh, you didn't, you know, need to go $20,000 in debt just to get a degree to work a minimum wage job. Like, it's, it's, this, th it's an anime that's trying to be didactic about how to fix the problems in society written by people who do not understand the problems of society. I do appreciate how this show is written by old people, and it suggests that the best way to handle, you know, change society is to wipe away the old people. Kind of an old goal there. Nice one, Franks. Well, maybe not so much the old people, but like... Well, no, it's the like you said, the old, the old people in this show are the lazy liberals that They also get all uploaded time... into Verms, you know, SSD yeah. in space. Like, yeah, they literally like the, are erased so Just the structure that enables all that stuff, I think, is what, what needs to go according to this yeah. show. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's interesting that you, like, the internet is a really cool and interesting kind of... It, it's interesting to think about that being 
the catch-all for all the bad things. Yeah, because it's a hive mind. And I also forgot to mention one of the things I wanted to short my theory with is that, diegetically speaking, like, I understand why the adults, you know, all got bloated to Verm's, you know, SSD in space. But we only we only saw the one couple who were really old, so I'm going with the assumption that they were just super old when they started the immortality treatment. Because by all accounts, like, from what we see in Nana and Hatch, they, like, you know, went ten years without changing how they looked at all. So it just seems to stop the clock from when you start taking it. So there's nothing stopping the adults, you know, being con- being productive or contributing to this future society post-ape. But they got loaded. So what's the reason why they got loaded narratively? Because the old must make the way for the new. It's the opposite of what you said previously. Like, that's how the show starts. The young consumed by the old, but then the show asserts that the young should push aside the old. Now, from my perspective, like, there are some things that this theory, this reading I've taken, that I do agree with. I think that people should be more active in contributing to society and shaping its, you know, roots and all that. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with enjoying, you know, a pleasurable lifestyle. There's certainly nothing wrong as, you know, as far as I'm concerned, with enjoying, you know, casual sex and, like, and also just, you know, enjoying a good meal now and then. Like, pleasure is its own reward. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a middle ground between what our life is as real people is right now versus what Franks is telling us about, which is to end up, you know, farming in the dirt and starting afresh. But it isn't interesting seeking, you know, the ideal middle ground as so often is in a lot of shows that have political agendas. So to me, like, people have said that this show is propaganda and you know what, after thinking about this for so long, after being, you know, half asleep or leaning back listening to music or daydreaming at work, you're right, it is propaganda. And it's bad propaganda. I'm not talking about it being bad in the terms like, you know, of its message, but it's just fucking shittily executed. It's shockingly bad. Yep. I have to ask, Doc, like, as someone who sat with me through all of these streams of thought, like, now that I've laid out my long Rosetta Stone bollocks about this entire thing, what's your feeling I on mean, it? I mean, can I just pretend it's about something else? <laughs> okay, yes. I will. Uh, no, I mean, like, yeah, I think you... I think you raise a lot of interesting points and in your uh in your reading now that I'm thinking on it I mean it does it does connect a lot of what I thought were kind of incongruous points of emphasis and arcs and stuff in the show so I mean yeah I think this is a really interesting a really interesting take on it I don't I'd have to think about it a lot and uh also possibly rewatch the show which i'm not prepared to to do don't um to to confirm Mm. or deny the like total soundness of your argument but like by and large i mean i think you're you're hitting on a lot of uh a lot of good points a lot of interesting points um i mean certainly it's hard to argue that the show is pushing or is not pushing young people to avoid the disastrous consequences of the future by like having families and starting kids and uh and yeah i mean i as far so as far as your theory goes i mean i think that's uh that's a a a cool reading that i like a lot um i guess as far as my own thoughts of the show um I don't know if there's a lot that I can 
that I can add. I mean, that I have, or that I haven't said before. I just wish it was better. I wish it was more focused. Mm-hmm. I wish um, that it actually was about uh, <laughs> the some of the things I, that I thought it was about, like some of the points it was trying to get at, like um, like the one that James brought up. The um, uh, the the you know if it was sort of arguing that there's something important about being embodied minds slash souls and not just being like brains that like you can't reduce humanity to uh the mental like that there's there's these important things Mm -hmm. that happen because we're in bodies uh and we shouldn't disregard that um and maybe i don't have to abandon all that uh in light of what you said but but i don't know like this has uh been really disappointing and unremarkable I think and like yeah I don't I don't know if there's a lot more I can say there's there's certainly been uh, a lot of reasons to be angry about the show uh it's had a lot of like pretty heinous like moments that it had just turned into silliness uh but yeah um definitely one in the uh in the lost column for for trigger and a1 in my opinion mm-hmm uh James, Emily, do you have anything else you want to add it, uh, about the show as a whole? I mean, I'm just going to return to my photocopy, photocopy <laughs> kind of thing. Like, that's still really how I see the show. And if it is trying to have this, this more, um, you know, like this outlook for, or like roadmap for otaku who are watching the show. I don't think it does a particularly good job of even espousing that message um, just because it's so schizophrenic. I'm sad that I didn't get to see some individual shows. Like, specifically, I would have loved to see a post-apocalyptic show where it's, it's not as focused on, like, making the nuclear family unit, but, like, how do we survive yeah, now that our, oh, all of our direction is gone? Because, like, one thing I'm sad that the show kind of dropped a bit. Like, this was supposed to be an experimental unit. And, yes, they feel like they have a bit more agency than other units, right? Because they weren't necessarily given as, I assume, precise direction as other uh, as other plantations. But at the same time, I I feel like they they rebound a bit too quickly and that's that's for narrative reasons so the show can show you the ultimate end game um at at the finish line right Mm -hmm. and i would have loved to see a show that's just like them recovering like if if we are abandoned by all of our you know like this this kind of top-down direction that we've been receiving our entire lives like what does happen? How do we survive? Like I found the those episodes the most interesting, even if I also felt like they were a bit cheap in a way because we hadn't spent enough time with the characters to even care really about what they were going yeah. through uh, at a lot of points. I find it hilarious that of all things, this show was like very consistent in terms of how it used like floral imagery and flower language and like plant imagery i thought that was kind of funny 
it didn't really end up serving a lot of purpose, but it was an interesting framing device, I guess. Can, oh, I'm sorry. Can I just? I'm sorry. I just wanted to directly respond real quick before I forgot to just one one thing that Emily said. Um, that the, the, if this is a roadmap for otaku, like it's not uh, very well done. And uh, boy, it's not clear. I am. <laughs> yeah, and it's not clear. Yes, the clarity piece. Um, I just wanted to highlight a different work to throw this into even more relief. Um, a few years ago, uh, Gen Urobuchi produced, uh, wrote uh, a shorter robot show. I think it's only like 12 episodes. Gargantia on the Virgilus planet that is also very mm. didactic and also aimed at people that are coming out of university and how they... Like kind of how they should prepare for life as an adult, and while I don't love the show, I also don't like hate it, and it's definitely much clearer on that. So I don't know if you're just sort of interested in this kind of thing, like a similar in a similar genre, maybe give that a look. Yeah, I mean, building off of that, I I think this show really is kind of a testament to one of uh, to something I feel very strongly about when it comes to whether you're writing speculative fiction or allegory or, or just kind of basic social commentary, um, especially in a genre piece, right? Um, when you're dealing with all of the, the trappings that you kind of have to deal with when you're writing a sci-fi story or a mecha story or, or what have you. Um, you know, I really strongly believe that regardless of what your social commentary is, if the story that is communicating those ideas doesn't work just as a pure narrative, Mm-hmm then like you guys have been saying the the morals that you're trying to communicate are also going to fall apart and i think the fact that you know it's taken 24 weeks and hours and hours worth of talking and thousands upon thousands of words worth of writing to essentially boil the one possible message of the show down to yeah, get out and take a walk sometime and also go have kids like <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it, you know, if this were a good show, we would have gotten that from like episode three, and then the rest of the show would have been about convincing us of why those ideas were worth mm-hmm. valuing. Instead, mm-hmm. the show is so haphazardly written. The plotting was so inconsistent. The characters were so often reduced to just mouthpieces being used to um, communicate very muddled themes Mm -hmm. that it's impossible to either a go along with the the themes because we don't know what they are and then it's impossible to b enjoy the story because it's a a, a mess and so i guess if anything darling in the franks is a real cautionary tale of what happens when you're so determined to try to teach the world a lesson that you forget to actually make a good anime exactly so let that be a lesson to future producers i guess um, i don't if, if you want to tell me that having babies and being straight is awesome cool i guess um whatever <laughs> just at, at least be coherent and at least you know make sure that your your plot goes from a to b to c without blowing up in its own face or just have one like have at least like I've stuck with shows when I 
have liked yes. the characters and the narrative is muddied mm-hmm. just because I like the characters. Exactly. Or mm-hmm. I've stuck with a show because like a lot of thriller or detective shows, not even in anime, but just generally, even if I don't like the characters because the plotting will be really interesting, right? Mm-hmm. You don't even have to have like both. Just get one right. Like something. keep me interested. <laughs> keep yeah. me interested for some reason other than like your thematic like overarching narrative because i like i'll admit i am the type of person who likes to look into like really weird detail oriented crap like that's what my entire (laughs) blog is about right but um but like you have to give me something else in route to that like something to keep me entertained because otherwise watching just to see like is this obscure detail going to pan out somewhere along the line even though i have no idea what the show is saying and the characters aren't well written and there's not like a coherent in-universe plot to follow yeah that's like it's just one thing on top of another that just makes this show completely a mess absolutely so closing thoughts from me first off i'm gonna reiterate something i've said previously but i feel it's worth repeating, like, for me, Frank's is a failure of script. Now, I place immense emphasis and immense weight on the scripting of anything, be it anime, be it a book, be it a Hollywood movie, you name it. Because it's the cheapest thing to do, and it's the foundation from which everything is built. This show, from start to finish, like, I have seen people work against what has been given to them to make something good of it. The director, Noriko Sakawa, who I praise so many times and who I still owe three pints whenever that may happen. Probably never. That's a legitimate offer, by the way. I'm not taking the piss here. I will do it. But the point being is that there are so many great people working on this show in service of absolutely fuck all. Well, okay, that's not necessarily true because, of course, I did come up with my theory. But I'm also going to say, regards to that theory... I don't presume enough intelligence on the part of writers to try and see that in there, because if that's the case, it took 24 episodes and a lot of daydreaming for me to come up with this. And I'm not <laughs> presuming that people are stupider than me. I'm saying that if they wanted to make a deliberate show about, you know, the need to procreate, and why Japan, you know, in particular, why their birth rate is declining, there's a show that already exists, and I can't believe I mentioned it, it's called Shinometa. <laughs> <laughs> again am i wrong though am i wrong oh, i remember that show am these I wrong, cookies though? are made with it, love that... <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing right Should have that what the kids are <laughs> yeah apparently but um here's my point with shinameso like mini reviewing coming of course like that show at least you know for one, didn't pussyfoot around the ideas that it was trying to get across, which was, you know, that sex is repressed. Like, it was very blatant, overly blatant even. And at least, you know, suggested that there were ways in which, you know, pleasure as sex, oh, sorry, sex as pleasure was good. It wasn't strictly about having children. It was a comprehensive look at it while also being a show that, you know, indulged in some ridiculous fucking puerile comedy. And yes, I'll even defend the attempted rape scene in it. Now, bear with me, don't tune out just yet. I'll defend that attempted rape scene of the lead female on the lead male because of the fact that she doesn't know the context in which how she conducts herself, you know, with sexual matters. Like, she doesn't know how what consent is. So it's teaching 
by, you know, admittedly a very crass and probably an appropriate joke, that consent is important. So this show in which, it, you know, one of the other lead female characters literally makes a dildo out of gelatin. <laughs> I'm dead serious. That literally happens. The anime is only gone. She makes anime a dildo. Only oh, no, downhill I've seen from it. There. The gelatin dildo, the peak. Yeah, that. <laughs> oh, it peaks. It peaks, and then there was the dildo. <laughs> Sorry, that was a terrible pun. But even that, even that show, has done better than Darling in the Franks has. And I just then think to myself, like, it could have been so many different things. This show, it could have been just a simple, silly, bombastic show about you know robots fighting. That's all we needed. And then it made itself about something more and failed miserably. And I feel bad for all the people working on this. Like, this show, like, going through stream, the stream of thought on this, we've had so many things happen while it's been going along. Like, the gatekeeping shit, you know, with Kim Kardashian. We've had the shit about the staff being harassed about how it went with Ichigo's character in episode 14. James, you yourself have been on the receiving end of some right fucking brain trust recently. Yeah. <laughs> this show has been ugly to comprehend in a lot of respects. It's brought out the worst in a lot of people. And also, it just feels like it's been cursed from the start. Like, okay, the script was shit. I'm not going to, you know, excuse Nishigori's bad writing on this. But being moved by Aniplex from, you know, the winter to the spring season. And Vice then Umihara-san, who voiced Goro. Yeah, oh, sorry, wrong way, yeah. My apologies. Um, And then Umihara-san, who voiced Goro falling ill with autoimmune disease. A lot of the times it felt like the show was working, you know, against, like, fate was against it. But I will always credit the people who made this show who weren't actually writing the script for putting their most into it. They did a good, if not adequate, job. It's just the script that laid it down. That will always be the thing I'll harp on until the day I die. Just get your fucking script right. It's not a big ask, I don't think. If you can't commit to discussing big ideas, don't do it in the first place. Just keep it simple. Keep it to be a fun and bastic ride from start to end without actually having deeper meaning. You don't need to do that. It's not difficult. Sorry to say. And one final thing I'll say is that this is something I've been saving up for a while now. The sh trust me on this, right? The, the show has had a continued uh, reference to Chinese mythology of the Jian which is, you know, two wings joining together. I think there's a different reference that this show could probably use overall, which is the mythological reference of Icarus. So Icarus, you know, followed in the father of... Sorry, followed in the steps of his father, Daedalus, and flew too close to the sun, because he was wearing wings of wax. It wasn't pastrami. <laughs> sorry, stupid reference. But how appropriate is that for... No, that's, that's fair. But how appropriate is that for this show? That it followed in the steps of stuff like Gunbuster and Diebuster and all the other mecha shows that came before it. The pedigree of the studios behind it. And aimed for great heights, but through the sin of hubris, crashed and burned so hard. That's the mythological reference I would use to label the show with. I wonder how well it's selling. Like, looking at the, looking at the sales numbers, I don't know what make good sales numbers, but it doesn't seem like it's selling, like, super well. I think I think someone was saying, and again, this is from someone that knows the numbers a lot better than I do, but I think they were saying that in Japan, at least, it's actually been quite the disappointment. Yeah, looking at, like, I have the, uh, I have the numbers up in front of me in terms of, like, what 
what it's been volume to volume, mm-hmm. but I don't have like a point of reference. So yeah. I guess I'm just wondering, like, <laughs> did you just post the link? The, to the them? saddest. The, my my uh, yeah. My office um, internet. We, we can post it in my chat. My office internet blocks link your link as adult content. <laughs> Wait, what? It's it trying is. to save you from reading more about Darling in the Franks. <laughs> it's, liter- it's literally an anime like DVD Blu-ray sale. It's just the Oricon <laughs> charts. Oh Apparently it's too, it's too yeah. adult for you. No, it's someone who compiles everything into English and, and posts it on a blog. I mean, yeah, it's the sales aren't even cracking past like it's not even getting into the thousands, hmm. um, and that's wow. yeah, that's not that's not good. That's bad. I will say, by the way, that I hope that the people who did work really hard on the show, like the animators, uh, the directors, such as Noriko Sakawa, uh, the voice actors, I hope they bounce back from this because everyone who wasn't actually putting pen to paper in this particular production was doing at least a good or adequate job to great. Uh, some of the some of the animations mm-hmm. like really good. Like some of the framing is really good, and storyboarding is really good. Like I hope, I hope all of these people find you know find work. Yeah, I mean Hiroshi yeah. Seko is uh, writing Banana Fish. Um, He's done all right so oh, far. Oh wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I just uh, I I don't want to misspeak. I guess in total, Volume Three of Darling and the Franks has sold about five thousand copies, but. Yeah, it says it's still at like fifteenth or something like that. Like I remember, yeah, I do it's remember. It's yeah, I do remember someone saying that even uh, like in terms of A one robot shows, I believe like Aldo Zero, which is another one, sold better than this. Mm. Which mm. I would say would be kind of a. I would say that would make this a disappointment, sales wise, considering, uh, just how much promotion yeah the studios behind this the talent behind it um but again i don't like i'm kind of talking out of my ass here because i'm not super informed on what good sales numbers are right so sure. well then um does anyone else have anything to add or is that it are we done oh, are I we done with franks yeah. we're done are we done yes absolutely yeah <sighs> Woo. we're done let's start the champagne I've already been drinking all the way through this podcast, to be fair, so there's that. This has been one of the most exhausting, like, experiences as just a fan of anime. Certainly been the most exhausting experience uh, with a single show I've had as, like, a content creator. I was so happy to see the back of this show. Yeah. I, I agree, but I'll also say that, you know what? I've enjoyed watching this show not for its own sake, but for the conversations I've true. had with you, Doc, Emily, yes. James, like, I, I, getting out of there right now, having both of you on this podcast has been an absolute mm-hmm. pleasure. Like, both the first time you've both been on there individually and as a group, I have genuinely enjoyed every minute that I've spent talking to you. Yeah, same here. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank I'd, you. Uh, this be is... more than happy to come back for a show that isn't <laughs> Darling in the Franks. <laughs> Sam, let me know when you guys watch like yeah. Star Trek. Well, I'd be very happy to be. I'd be very down. Yeah. If you want to do like a series review of Asobi Asobase, I am all there <laughs> because even after one episode, that show has uh, has has. Got you, its did, you gave it a five, <laughs> right? Absolutely. <laughs> and the only way, yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot more than most people did, but that that. It just really spoke to me, like specifically my sense of humor. Cool. So, good stuff. But but yeah, like 
if there's to bring it back to the very roots of what Rory Desh is about, just to remind people or to tell people who might not know, when I came on board to do this podcast with Doc, I had watched maybe two dozen anime shows in my entire life. So it's been a journey for me, going through all the shows that we've talked about and ha- actually having someone I can talk to and people I can talk to, people I've met from start to finish who I can talk with anime about in great length like this. So while I think that Darling in the Franks was an absolute bag of wank and I greatly upset by how it's wasted the talents and time of people who should be working on better stuff. I do not regret the time I've spent talking with people and editing this podcast week on week for the past six months. And to the people listening at home, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. So again, thank you all so much. James and Emily, thank you so much for spending the time coming with us to you know talk about this show at length, even though it's been diabolically awful. Um, that's all I really want to say, Nama. So I think it's now time to sign off. But so, firstly, Emily, uh, where can people find you on the internet and look at your work? Um, so if you are interested in anime or just me tweeting dumb stuff about my personal life and how Bandori <laughs> has taken over my life lately, uh, you can follow me at AJ the Fourth. If you want to follow my actual work. Uh, you can follow me at League of Emily. I write about people playing video games professionally. Excellent. Uh, James, how about you? Where can people find you? Where can people look at your work? Unless they're already looking at it because they look at it in bad faith because they're idiots. Yeah. Um, well, my uh, my blog, which I have put a lot of work this summer into updating and actually making up to date, is uh, Kick the Beckett with two T's dot WordPress dot com. Um, and uh, for right now, that's where I'm posting all the links to my freelance writing, mostly on Anime News Network. But uh, assuming things pan out, I'm, I'm trying to branch out and uh, create some more content and, and kind of diversify my portfolio a little bit. So kickthebeckett.wordpress.com. Or if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's just at kickthebeckett. So. Excellent. Um, and lastly, my longtime friend and solo companion for all this, Doc. Where can people find you? Well, if you want to get at me on Twitter, I'm at the Subtle Doctor. Um, please, if you want to uh, hear me talk uh, and with Shadon and folks like Emily and James and others of Orgalia, uh, check out the Waroi Desho, you know, podcast on SoundCloud and on Apple Podcast. Should be on like all the podcatchers at this point. Just W A R U I. D-E-S-H-O-U and uh, subject yourself to that uh, suffering. There's hours and hours of oral suffering right there for you. (laughs) Fair enough. So, just to close again, to people who've been with us either from the beginning of this stream of thought season, season two, on Dying the Franks, or people who've joined us more recently, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us talk about it. It's immensely appreciated. I hope that you've enjoyed it. And again, if you don't feel as we do, that's great. I don't, I and Doc and everyone else don't want to tell you how you should feel about a show. You are more than entitled to your own opinion. Just be mindful that other people might feel differently. And let's be constructive in our discussions about it. I mean, if that long theory I came up with, if you feel I'm talking out of my ass, I'd love to hear from you about it. Tell me why I'm wrong. Just qualify it and that'll be great. This is the stuff I live for. <laughs> so, no, really, really. So thank you so much to everyone who's listened. Like, if you do get a chance, leave us a rating or review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help our discoverability. But from me, Emily, Doc, and Jim, 
I'm just going to say thank you all so much again. Have a very good night and embrace each other, everyone, until the ends of the universe. And we'll see you for Banana Fish in Season 3 of Stream of Thought. It's a fleeting ring No one can reach the My name is Code 086. You know, life is a Frank's parasite ain't easy, what with the emotional suppression, the lavish feast, and the complete destruction of the planet's environment, but you know what really keeps me awake at night? It's the cost of my mech insurance. With premiums skyrocketing these days, slurring Klaxosaurs ain't mass with a clear conscience, it ain't what it used to be. But that's when I found MechSure, the only giant robot insurance provider with a suite of packages designed specifically for Frank's pilots, including their all-in-one premature death scheme, which ensures that if I or my partner die in combat, MechSure will deliver a trinket free of charge to ensure that we always remember the other's needless sacrifice for the benefit of the overall plot. That's not all though. You see, I was very worried about being upgraded to male anime protagonist status, not because it would turn me into a brain-dead idiot, but because I was terrified my premiums would go through the roof if my Frank suddenly changed shape or size, or became a colossal version of my partner in a wedding dress. Thankfully, all of Mechshaw's Frank's packages come with their super robot claws, locking your costs in for a year in case of a completely unexpected case of hard work and guts overcharging your robot. In the end, Ape and Papa might possibly be a collection of space ghosts, and technically only adults should be able to buy insurance, but I can always trust MechSure to give me that peace of mind. So don't delay. MechSure you're covered today. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hello, Shadon, Doctor. It's me, Sean Connery. Hope this message finds you well. I'm calling about our mutual friend. Ah, uh, you know him as... Crusty old anime fan. Now, he's a bit under the weather in the hospital. Collapsed at my 
place recently, in fact. He's screaming like a madman. Something about Frank's being over. Finally ending his curse. He's crossed a bear for six months. He briefly, in the ward, had a lucid moment and asked me to tell you to fucking cover some old anime now that you're done with this Frank's nonsense. I don't know what the devil he's talking about. <laughs> you know I don't watch anime. Now, Doctor, before I go, I want to tell you something for myself. Please tell Shadon to stop texting me goddamn spoilers to the fucking bachelor. Good day. Thank you.